Hi, this is Steve. Today we are rebroadcasting one of our favorite episodes of all time to celebrate the release of one of the most anticipated sequels of all time. Here's the timeline. In 1968, famed science fiction writer Philip K. Dick published Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? In 1981, Ridley Scott was hired to direct the film version, which was eventually titled Blade Runner. Blade Runner was released in 1982. It was not a commercial success. It did, however, develop a cult following that seemed to grow more dedicated every year. Rumors began to fly around that there was another, better version of the film. In 1991, Warner Brothers released the director's cut, which completely changed our understanding of Blade Runner. But still it wasn't over. In 2007, the final cut was released on Blu-ray as the definitive version. Rumors of a sequel had been flying around Hollywood for almost 20 years, and it finally went into production in July of 2016. Then, in early 2017, three men, Access Hollywood's Scott Mance, John, the outlaw Roca, and a little-known directing instructor from Los Angeles, California, got together to create the ultimate exploration into the world of Blade Runner. So, in honor of this week's release of Blade Runner 2049, The Cinephiles is proud to present one of our favorite episodes with special guest Scott Mance, Blade Runner. They're just questions, Leon. In answer to your query, they're written down for me. It's a test designed to provoke an emotional response. Shall we continue? Describe in single words only the good things that come into your mind. About your mother? Your mother? Yeah. Let me tell you about my mother. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, its history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. I'm John Roca. You guys have heard me many times on this show already. So I'm a voiceover artist, actor, host of shows in LA, and I am crazy super excited for this episode of The Cinephiles. And we are very happy to welcome back to our microphones... One of our greatest and possibly most requested guests of all time, <laughs> Scott Mance from Access right? Hollywood. Is I think so. Right? I think we can fairly oh, yeah. say that. Yes. Wow, fellas, it is great to be back here talking movies with you. After the only way to follow The Wrath of Khan, the Citizen Kane of Star Trek movies, <laughs> is by talking about the most influential sci-fi movie of all time. You, you could say that might be 2001. It might be Planet of the Apes. I think it's Blade Runner, and it is my number one favorite movie of all time. Wow. Bar none. That's amazing. So when you come back on the cinephiles from this point forward, it's all downhill. It's downhill from here, boys. <laughs> every movie you're going to like less than what we're talking about uh, right but, now. Well, listen. Uh, and by the way, you know, for those of you who don't know me, then uh, yeah. shame on you. But I'm the film critic for Axis Hollywood. And I do a bunch. I do Shmos. No, I do movie fights. Yes. I used to do a show called Profiles. And uh, I do uh, Q&As and panels uh, throughout Los Angeles and uh, cover film festivals around the country. Um, that yes. was an excellent back introduction <laughs> of my poor introduction. <laughs> well done, sir. Thank you. I yeah. salute you. Uh, and, and yes, the movie we're talking about uh, is Blade Runner. And since this is your favorite film of all time, I can't wait to find out. How did you first come to it? Okay, well, it is my favorite movie of all time, fellas. But 
it was not always my favorite movie of all time. In fact, when I saw it on June 25th, 1982, the same weekend that John Carpenter's The Thing opened, the same month that E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Poltergeist opened. Wow. What a month. June of 1982. Incredible. You know, I was coming off these movies, and I thought it was going to be uh, an exciting science fiction film. Yeah. I was thinking of Harrison Ford, The Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So 13-year-old kid goes in to see Blade Runner and walks out of the theater scratching his head going, what the hell was that? <laughs> yeah. I did not like it at all. And a lot of people didn't get it. It bombed yep. on its first release. Right. But the way I really came to understand and really get Blade Runner was I, I moved to California from Philadelphia in 1991. So 1992 was the 10th anniversary of Blade Runner. It was also the release of the director's cut. Right. So when I saw the director's cut, I had 10 years of perspective on film. Right. I also was grown up. So when I went to the New Art Theater in West L.A. and saw the director's cut, which got rid of Harrison Ford's god-awful voiceover mm. and added in a short, very brief dream sequence, sequence with a unicorn, yeah. mind blown. My whole perspective on the film changed, and it immediately shot up to one of my favorite movies of all time. And when the final cut came out in 2007, the 25th anniversary of Blade Runner, yeah. it it was now my number one favorite movie of all time. It grew on me, and I think that's why it stays there. So, and, and, and you've already answered one of the things that I know we're going to talk about, which is now I know which version you prefer. It's very, right. very clear. Right. Um, John, how about you? Uh, I came to it uh, on video, like on VHS. I remember rent, it was one of the first films I rented because once again, I, was, I think I was 12, 13, 14 years old, and I started to read articles about films because I was so getting into this idea of loving films so much. And this was one that people talked about in film magazines as being like classic and ahead of its time and whatever. And so when I watched it, I absolutely loved it. And the, the voiceover didn't bother me as much because that last scene when he says what he says to him in voice, I don't know why he let me live. There was just something about that affected me. And the noir aspect of it all was so awesome. And I, I'm such a fan of the rain that to me, the film is all dark and rainy. And to me, it just spoke all levels. And the romance between him and Sean Young, for whatever reason, it had struck, it struck an incredibly powerful chord with me. So you liked the way it, it was. the first time you saw it? I did. It. I liked it the first time I saw it. I, and I would rent it over and over again every few months. Uh, while And then when the director's cut came out, and I remember I went to see it in the theater. I think it was downtown in D.C. at the Uptown. Yep. And without any uh, voiceover, I loved it even more. And the unicorn thing was so amazing because that was when I was starting to read articles about whether is Deckard, is Deckard a replicant. And so you're just like, whoa. So the film... Uh, never ages for me. I still think it's the greatest science fiction film ever made. I think the special effects still hold up to 2017. Rewatched it again for this podcast, and there's only two sequences or two scenes where I think the special effects doesn't 100% look real. And but other than that, the film is still powerful. I think the narrative still works. And so for me, it has been a film that's always echoed in my heart, always. Just always. Something about Harrison Ford's performance, Sean Young's beautifulness captured at this time and Rutger Howard's ruthlessness. Yeah, just all of it. Uh, and watching it over and over again, I get, and just like the great films we talk about, Steve, on this podcast, 
you get something new out of it every time you watch it, no Absolutely. matter where you are in life. Yeah. What about yeah. you, Steve? How about the first yeah. time you saw it? So I don't know. I cannot. Oh, strangely really? enough, I can't remember the first time. I, and, and usually, because usually if I saw it in a theater, I can usually remember the theater. Mm. And I can't remember the theater, so it's very possible I didn't see it in the theater. Yeah. But I saw it soon after. I think, you know, because I'm starting high school in, mm-hmm. in 83, and uh, I know I was, it was in that VHS uh, rotation, and I loved it with the voiceover. Mm. I love, and I remember, yeah. I definitely remember going to see it at the, seeing the director's cut at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland mm. uh, when it came out, and I remember, I had seen the, the theatrical cut so many times that I could hear the voiceover playing. <laughs> oh, oh, interesting. That's yeah, great. I, mean, I knew what every... You saw the voiceover, voiceover version that many times, but oh, even I, when you're watching it without it, you're still hearing it. I could still great. hear it. Okay. And so one of the interesting things about this movie, because we have multiple versions, I think there are like yeah. six versions total, is that I can't not have the experience with the theatrical version and really turn that off. Mm. You know, So it's, it's a little hard for me to go, because I, I probably saw it 20, 30, 40 times at yeah. least yeah. you know because we rented it over mm-hmm. and over again yep. and I think I had it on VHS for a long time and so it was a long time before I saw the director's cut right. um, and and for me it's sort of well I love that theatrical version I love the director's cut for different reasons mm. they're, they're different films in a lot of ways and it's funny though like because I went through in, in doing research for this I went through and went okay what are all the changes they're not that many yeah. no there's not it's very, very few it's not like you're watching like Star Wars uh, A right. New Hope with right. a special edition where there's right. so many changes to it. Right, or, or like Apocalypse Now Redux. Where <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Apocalypse Now Redo. Yeah, yeah. totally, totally different, yeah. different movie. Um, uh, uh, so I think to start on this, the first person we really got to talk about is Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people talk about, I always heard this thing of like, there's the ABCs of science fiction. <laughs> Asimov, Bradbury, and, uh, and Clark. Yeah. Um, and... This is kind of the D to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that he's as good a writer, I would say. I don't know how if you've read some of his stuff. Some of it. They're they're okay. But the ideas in terms of science fiction, he's some of the greatest ideas. And he's given us more science fiction movies than anyone I can think of. Yeah. You know, between Total Recall and Minority Report. Waking Life. Right. Yeah. uh, Scanner Darkly. And then we got Man in the High Castle. Right. You know, and the sort of ideas of what is real, what is not, and the speculation about what it is to be alive and mm-hmm. what is, how does your brain work and what is consciousness and what is, you know, all of those things, that's really, really deep in what science fiction is. And, yeah. you know, a lot, of, a lot of the themes that Philip K. Dick has explored in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, right. which is the story that Blade Runner is based on, were explored in other films mm-hmm. uh, that Philip K. Dick, you know, you know the the uh, adaptations of those mm-hmm. movies, but also just in other films. Period. Like you look at the last, let's see, what is it? Uh, uh, almost thirty years. You know now that uh, Blade Runner came out. Yeah. And uh, wait, wait, eighty two. Thirty five. Yeah, thirty five yeah, years. years yeah. Man, good gosh. Yeah. Man, math is not my strong point. <laughs> Movie release dates yes, are my sure. strong point, not math. I don't know why. That's so. That's so weird. Pay attention to this for your next uh, schmodown. Yeah, that's right. This that's is right. where you could take him. Yeah, yeah, right. take, take me down the with the math. Uh, two plus four. What? Oh, but but really, guys. Um, <laughs> you know when you when you look at uh, a lot of movies that have come out since then, like Strange Days, right. uh, City of Lost Children. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my f- other favorite movies of all time, Children of Men, yeah, Minority sure. Report, which is obviously based on Phil K. Dick, but also just uh, just recently had Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. And not a good film. Nope. But I'm watching the movie going, it's Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. 
the especially themes. the landscapes on the buildings, oh, the Japanese stuff, it's all so of it. Yep. Cyberpunk. Yep. It is freaking Blade Runner, and yep. I'm watching Ghost in the Shell, going like, I'd rather be watching Blade Runner. <laughs> right. And you're, I'm thinking about Blade Runner while, yeah. while watching Ghost in the Shell, thinking this movie is 35 years old, and it still looks like yeah. it could have been shot today. It's still ahead of its time. Absolutely, yeah. looks better, honestly. Yeah. Because and we're going to get into this in detail, obviously, but a it looks amazing, and b it's real. Yes, you know, and that's the thing. You know, we we, we, we CG has come so far, and it's so amazing. But this real is still real. Yeah, and when you see you know real things and real humans interacting with real stuff, yeah. It's just different. I just love the sequence with the with the cop car when he's like questioning. Yeah. yeah, it's just like just the just the exhaust coming out as it's levitating out is just so believable, and it doesn't look like it's yep. on strings or anything like that. It looks so real, and it just it's those little things that make you feel like you are actually in the world that you are watching. And, and so also, great. also too, you know, a lot of those billboards have been taken down in LA oh, yeah. now because uh, people were complaining that that they were distracting and like people who lived in those areas were were didn't like having the lights shining in their windows uh. but you know for a few years there around LA and and in New York and some other cities too big cities around the country they had you had the virtual billboards yes right and as, as soon as I started seeing those especially on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood the first thing I thought of was Blade Runner yeah absolutely yeah. me too same thing well there's so much in this movie that is you know there're things obviously that our world doesn't look mm-hmm, like this world mm-hmm. but there are a lot of things where like yep yeah. That's it. Absolutely. Um, uh, so uh, we start with Philip K. Dick, and uh, the first screenwriter they bring on is Hampton Fancher. Um, and he, I think, really gets developed in that post-Star Wars, post-Alien, science fiction is big money. Mm. Let's see what we can do. And it starts off as a fairly small-budget movie. It started off as a fairly small budget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it turned into one of the most notorious shoots in Hollywood history. Wow. And who do you uh, think is responsible for that uh, change from small budget to notorious? Well, listen, you know, the studio that released the film was Warner Brothers. The director who worked on the film, you know, Ridley Scott... We have to talk about Ridley Scott. You know, yeah. I don't know if this is the right time to really intro him. But Absolutely. The That's... only the only big big studio film he had done prior to this was uh, John Roca's favorite Ridley Scott movie <laughs> called Alien. Alien. Yes. And uh, we have argued about the Alien versus Blade Runner elsewhere in yes. our infamous one-on-one Screen Junkies two-hour-plus marathon That's movie rough. fights yes. that everyone says that Roca should have won. Well, and I have to say, truth be told... You crushed that, brother. Don't you stop sh- it. You should no. have won that damn thing, well, especially the last question. You yeah. know where I had to fight in favor of Moonlight. I yeah. did such a poor job of that. Jeez, you know. Anyway, tell Andy uh, that. Oh, geez. give up uh, your but, spot but, then. But we're give digressing up, yeah. here because we can digress. Yes, but. You know, Ridley Scott was still an up-and-comer. He was a visionary because of what he had accomplished on Alien. Yeah. But he was working with, uh, with a, a, I believe, an American crew for the first time. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a, a trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. He, the, the crew did not like his style. He was not an easy director to work with. The shoot from start to finish was very difficult. It went way over budget. It went way over schedule. Uh, he was a stickler for the details, which is a good thing. I mean, mm-hmm. you want a director who's going to do that. But at the same time, the uh, that the crew started calling the film not Blade Runner, Blood Runner. Wow. 
And also, you know, Will Rogers had that saying, I never met a man I didn't like. Well, <laughs> the crew started making T-shirts that said, Will Rogers never met Ridley Scott. Oh, man. So, wow. and, and then, you know, he butted heads with Sean Young. He butted heads with Harrison Ford. Mm. Uh, but in the end, it's, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. No, so, this, is, this is something we've come up over and over again on The Cinephiles, which is a lot of times these great directors aren't necessarily so nice, right. not so easy to work with, and not necessarily liked during the process. We came up against it in Apocalypse Now. We came yeah. up against it in, in The Shining. Charlie Chaplin, Modern yeah. Times. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, like James Cameron, he shoots with a British crew on yeah. Aliens. They didn't like him. Yeah, He had a real rough time. And James Cameron, also stickler for the details, yeah. obsessive about being right and getting things done his way. Titanic. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, this is... You know, this is something we're going to see over and over again with filmmakers. There are also Ron Howard and Rob Reiner and right. people that are lovely to work with. Yeah, sure. Uh, Steven Spielberg's not supposed to be like this, but there's some people that are like this. Well, and I would defend a little bit Ridley Scott to be like, well, sometimes American crews can be very, very, uh, uh, can be jerks, can be assholes because they want their breaks, Teamsters, you, you know, you see that in unions. They can be quite like real anal retentive about stuff and pushy about stuff. And, you know, that can be hard for a British filmmaker who is used to it the British crews being a bit more malleable. So that's going to happen, right? And there's natural resentment at times between American versus British. That has been around since the dawn of this country. So it's not a surprise that at times it creeps in. So maybe some of that was going on there too, you know? So it's, it's certainly, none of us were on the set, so it's certainly possible. Well, I, you know, I, 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 I was going to bring up uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Apocalypse Now. Oh, right, yeah. I mean, Oof. you know, like after after the two Godfather films in the conversation, he put everything, mm -hmm. and I mean everything, into the making of Apocalypse Now, including mortgaging his house yeah. to, uh, to, to, to finish it up. And, uh, you know, that saying in the film, you know, never get off the boat. Well, Coppola got off the boat when that movie was finished because he has never made a masterpiece since. Yes, no. That's a great you point. Know, that was it. He had four great movies in the 70s. Yep. And, you know, then he did, uh, uh, what was it, uh, The Outsiders and, you know, like right. Peggy Sue Got Married, you know. Yeah. But nothing ever Rainmaker. equated his own Rainmaker. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, he never equated that. Mm -hmm. Agreed. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, it seems like that movie broke him. You know? Yeah, yeah. On, on some, well, what we should say, most filmmakers don't have more than, mm -hmm. you have three or four great masterpieces you did good. You right, know? right. Well, look at, I mean, Spielberg's masterpiece films. He's actually a director who's had like maybe like six or seven. Yeah. Because you have Jaws, Close Encounters, Raiders, E.T., uh, uh, Schindler's List, yeah. Private Ryan. Those, okay, six. Yeah. Um, really four, know. though. What's that? Yeah, really four. Four. Yeah, yeah E.T. and Private Ryan can go. You know, what? Yeah. Well, E.T. is a masterpiece. It's not a masterpiece. Come on. It is a masterpiece. It's not a movie fight. We're not on movie fights. Not movie fights. Not movie fights. But, but yeah. you know, there are so many other elements. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's there's the direction. There's obviously the cinematography. Yeah. There is the production design, the costume design, and the music, the score. Mm-hmm. Is brilliant. Oh, you're talking about for Blade Runner? Yeah, for yeah, Blade Runner. The Vangelis. Vangelis, yeah. oh, that gosh. score. That yeah. score. Is it Vangelis or Vangelis? I've never known. Uh, I Van, I say Vangelis. Vangelis. It's probably well, Vangelis. Vangelis. Who knows? Well, you could, uh, anyone out there who yeah. knows, if Mr. Vangelis or Vangelis are there, you could come talk to us. Yeah, come talk us to us. Correct us. We'll be happily. We will happily. Yes. Uh, stand corrected if if we're corrected by you, sir. I don't. I don't um. buy many soundtracks, and I bought the soundtrack score for this film and for Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire is one of my favorite films, bar none. The, and I love his score for both of these movies. The they somehow with work the, with the soundtracks. 
that have been officially released for Blade Runner yeah. is that none of them are the complete scores. Right. Yes. Agreed. So, so uh, years ago, I went on eBay and someone was selling a bootleg version of the complete score to Blade Runner. Wow. So, you know, I, I bought it and I thought, you know, I was thinking like it would be like a, a, a muffled copy. It would not be right. up to par with the official version. And it is. Wow. It is okay. uh, like it's a two disc set that has all of the music, wow. every last note of that film. Yeah. And uh, even some of the uh, background uh, atmosphere, like yeah. when he's going through Animoid Row, uh, you know, right. like everything. And like when he first enters the Bradbury building. Yeah. And and here, you know, you're you, he's going up the stairs and it's cutting to Pris, mm-hmm. you know, sort of like going back and forth. Yeah. It is every note. I'll make a copy for you guys. Oh, definitely. Awesome. Great. I would love yeah. that. Well, what's interesting great. about the score is it happens at that moment, which is, you know, it's a synth score. And yeah. there's a lot of times you listen to a synth score from the early 80s and you go, ugh, that sounds like a synth score from uh-huh. the early 80s. Uh-huh. This sounds like the score to Blade Runner, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it's the same thing we saw again. We're, it's funny we keep coming back to it, but Apocalypse Now also synth yeah, score, yep. late seventies, and it's a great score. And yeah. it's interesting, like when people use these technological tools that have to advance are going to advance so much mm-hmm. in the next thirty years, and they use them perfectly. And yeah. this is such a great example. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things I didn't know is I didn't know that Ridley Scott was going to make Dune before this. Oh yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So he was Lynch. he was he was actually developing Dune. Yeah. They were doing set designs and then I guess his elder brother died right before making this film. Really shook him up and he he decided not to do Dune and jumped over to Blade Runner. Mm. And I was thinking about us watching Blade Runner cuz it is you know I hadn't seen it in a long time by the way. Mm. So I'd seen it a ton. Right. I don't even know if I'd seen it in the last 5 years. And so watching again it's like and watching the final cut which is what I watched for the show. Yeah. It's like man this is a this is a movie's got a lot of heaviness. Oh yeah. You know it weighs on you and I was thinking about Ridley Scott, this event of his brother's death and coming in and driving the crew and driving this production right. in this extremely intense way. And I can't say that those things are connected, but maybe they are. I maybe think you are. I think you're right to say they're connected, Steve, because it, it explores death. The whole film explores death. And right? life. E- and life, exactly. Even that, sequ- that sequence of Roy Batty confronts Terrell. He says, I, I want what you, can't, what you might not be able to give me. I want more life. I and, want and, and more Terrell, life. Yeah, and Terrell Fucker. says... Yeah, right. Yeah, and Terrell says yeah. what he says, and that's the exploit. That's everything comes to that that scene. Everything leads to that scene of him, which is in an, which is almost an hour and a half into the movie, or an hour and twenty minutes in the movie, and it finally happens. And he confronts him, and he has that conversation. He wants more life, and this is the whole thing. So maybe he's working out these things about his the death of his brother. Maybe. Like he'd want him to like. How could his brother have lived longer? Like, how is this possible if it was a surprise or something that that wasn't expected? And so that, I, I love that. I'm sure that influenced what was going on. And and the relationship I think between the meaning of your life yes. and your longevity, you yes. know, like like what is the value? Who am I? Yeah. As, and, and what is the value that I bring to the world? And particularly based on how long am I going to live? What if my days are numbered? You know, the light that burns shortest burns brightest, and you have shone so brightly, Roy. Uh, oh, that's it's such a it's such a great scene. Yeah. Uh, but we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so Hampton Fancher is writing the script. The original title is Dangerous Days because I guess they didn't want to do do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, <laughs> which I actually really like that title. It's a by great the way, title. 
and they bring in Ridley Scott and man, as soon as Ridley Scott comes in this production, it sounds like it's just a whirlwind. Like he is changing things every single day. Every single day things aren't good enough. The script is constantly changing. Every time he walks into a, a design meeting, mm -hmm. looks at a set, everything is constantly changing. There was something one of the producers said, he said something like, every time Ridley Scott, Scott picks up a pencil, it's gonna cost you hundreds of dollars. Every time he picks up a pen, it's gonna cost you thousands. <laughs> um, and, and one of the great, some of the great influences is, because we know that, as we talked about when we did Alien, that Ridley Scott has a design background. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a guy who really understands his way around visuals and some of the influences really had was Mobius the great uh, graph, uh, comic book artist right. um, that's and you could see his influence in. he also brings in Sid Mead and I think they brought in Sid Mead for like 1500 bucks a day to come work for a couple of days but then he ended up working for months and months and months wow. which cost him a lot of money oh <laughs> um, uh, and you could see his design uh, you know throughout this whole thing mm -hmm. um, and when it gets and the budget starts going because it's supposed to be a small budget movie starts going up starts going up and that's when they have to bring in Warner Brothers and Alan Ladd Jr. Well no you, yeah. you, you, you talk you talk about the the production design you talk about the the visual effects Douglas Trumbull Douglas Absolutely. Trumbull, who was part, uh, who did the groundbreaking effects for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm. He did the effects for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And at the last minute, he jumped in to basically save Star Trek The Motion Picture. Wow. Which, if you, ask, if you ask Douglas Trumbull about Star Trek The Motion Picture to this day, he still shrugs his shoulders and goes like, oh, that movie was a mess. <laughs> and it was. Um, <laughs> but Blade Runner, on the other hand, like... Like with the way when you see the spinners flying around, you see the the glow around the lights. Yeah. You know that came from that you know, that that was very evident in the special effects for Close Encounters as well. Right. And uh, you know the this the cityscape. You know Los Angeles, twenty nineteen. Yeah. That when you're watching the movie for the first time in nineteen eighty two, it feels like a long way off. Yeah. Well. As of this taping, <laughs> it is two and a half years away. Yeah, yeah. Can yep. you imagine how apeshit fans are going to go when they go to see the original Blade Runner in theaters in November of 2019, especially in Los Angeles? Yeah. Like, it's going to be great. Yeah. Can, can we make a date? Yes. Yeah, oh, done. my Let's God. Let's do it. Right now. Let's get it. our tickets now. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. Oh, sure. We're, be, yeah. we're there. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. They, uh, they, ended up, they wanted to shoot some on locations, but they couldn't find locations that are going to look right. Uh, and so they shoot on the Warner backlot. And one thing I just want to say is the buildings that are in this movie are ones that every single person listening to this right now has seen hundreds and hundreds of times mm. because it's the Warner backlot. And th that backlot has been there for 50 years and they've shot TV shows and movies and all sorts of stuff on those buildings and you would never know that you are looking at anything you have ever seen before wow. in the way that this thing is designed. It is crazy how much they transform that backlight. Whenever I mm -hmm. go to Warner Brothers, let's say I go if I if I go for a, a press screening, I always give myself try to give myself enough time to get there early and go back to that backlot because it's not far from where the press screenings are. Right. And and I just like I'll look down the street and it's, you know it's bare, but. When Ridley Scott was making Blade Runner, he the the transformation of that backlot with all the detail and and all the props and all the lights and the the wires and the rain the yeah. rain this this never ending yeah. rain uh, and like you said John you know the the film noir yeah is, it is a perfect blend on many levels because it is uh, a it is the past 
mm-hmm. and the future. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, you know, the, the, the cyberpunk element to it. Yeah. You know, there's so many elements that blend the past and the future in such a perfect way mm-hmm. that that really no other, even other films that are inspired by it don't come close to matching it. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And, and what you say about them combining these genres, it's so interesting to me because when we did Alien, that's a science fiction horror film. Mm-hmm. And this is a science fiction detective film and particularly noir. Yes. And even though they're doing this futuristic vision, one of the things that's so brilliant is to create that vision they're drawing from the past. Mm-hmm. And there's this 40s looks to the costumes yes. and the way people talk. Yep. And and this is, and, and we talked about this when we talked about Alien, is that one of the great design elements of Alien is that that is a lived-in world. Yeah. It's not a pristine world like we would see in Star Trek or these other places. Mm-hmm. It has dirt in it, had people pick out their clothes and their clothes are wrinkled mm-hmm. and they sweat and they smoke and they live. And in this one, same thing. Yep. We are in a lived-in science fiction yep. world, not a pristine one. Even the sequences, Steve, I would say, like when he first encounters M.M. M- at Walsh pulling out the, 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 the full bottle of liquor with yeah. the two shot glasses, the, the, when they're watching the, uh, the interview, it's the blue hue of the, of the yep. projector, that kind of thing. All that vibe is there. Uh, even M.M. M- at Walsh's look and clothes and Edward James Olmos's hat, his cane, all of it is very, very 40s. The trench coat is a little bit, uh, it's kind of, you don't know what era that's from that Harrison Ford is wearing. It doesn't necessarily scream 40s, but it feels close enough that it feels evocative of that. And the one song in the film where you actually hear lyrics one sounds like a 40s song. Dear, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. One more time. Yeah. Just because so, you, you mentioned the wardrobe. Yeah. And, and to, to give it that noir look, but a futuristic look at noir is uh, you know the trench coats, and at one point during the development, they wanted Harrison Ford to wear a hat, just uh, like you know the yeah. Marlowe did back in the day. Right. Well, he had just done a movie where he wore a hat called mm. Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> and he did not want to wear a hat again. So his hairstyle yeah. was originally just going to be you know parted to the side like it was in. Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then he shows up with this buzz cut and people, you know, were like, uh, okay. He just wanted to look different. Yeah. He didn't want to look just like he did in his previous movie, even though the studio would have been perfectly happy with that to sort of like, you know, ride the wave of Raiders into Blade Runner. That probably would have helped the box office of Blade Runner. And I, this is funny that I hadn't thought about until you mentioned it because I didn't, I never heard that story, but I remember seeing it. Mm-hmm. Can't remember if it was in a theater or not, but being finding that hairstyle so jarring yeah. in the early '80s, like it was so different. And I so loved him as Han Solo and mm. Indiana Jones, and this was a completely different thing. One thing I didn't know about the casting process is that they were talking to Dustin Hoffman. What Dustin Hoffman? Not only did, were they talking to him, but he had uh, as as Deckard, oh and he was so involved with the development of that <sighs> film. Yeah. That that a lot of the, uh, the a lot of the notes that he gave were used, and when it came around to Harrison Ford doing the role, he liked Dustin Hoffman's changes so much that that's why he agreed to do the film. Good God, I can't even imagine. The I film can't Dustin Hoffman. It's one of the weirdest. <laughs> well, listen. Anytime you have an actor own and crush a role yeah. like that's that, yeah. you yeah. cannot imagine anyone else playing the role. Yeah, I guess like, so. I cannot imagine. Anyone else 
But Emma Stone playing Mia in La La Land. <laughs> I could. Like, I can could. you imagine? Brie Larson. If, if Emma Watson was going to play that role, like, you know, because she was originally, or Brie Larson. Brie Larson would have killed know, it. Brie Larson, the next Meryl Streep? No. Oh, my God. Movie fights is crossing over into the cinephile. <laughs> you make brought it, it over. You make brought it Make it stop. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about this movie. Yeah. Uh, Maybe yeah, we should go. jump in. What's Let's the next going? thing? So we're going, so, so we start off with, uh, one of the most amazing special effects shots I yeah. think in Hollywood history, which is what they call, I think they call it the Hades shot, which is this this camera moving in over these smokestacks yeah. in this version of L.A. that's just remarkable. Dystopian. Yeah. Dystopian, Dystopian yeah. was the word that was, kept with a capital D, wanted to overdrive with Blade Runner. That opening shot, before you even see that, mm-hmm. the title card, yeah. Los Angeles, November 2019 and then the smokestacks are, are blowing up yeah. the fire and the brimstone and, 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 you, and you combine that with the score because right from the first note yeah. of the score is boom so wee, you understand wee, wee, yeah this is what we're dealing with yeah. right the darkness just a darkness and the fire coming out amongst the things amongst the landscape all of it just puts you in a place feeling factories feeling this kind of once again this combination of future and past past being uh, the factories of the industrial revolution combined with the advancement of electronics so we have this combination is so great right from the beginning and then you hear this you hear the synthesizer music kick up as it's as you're going across because what are you flying in you're flying in this futuristic thing right and and guys (laughs) cut in with those images of of the uh, hovering over the cityscape there is an eye. Yeah. Right. There is an eye. And and it is never explained. Nope. It is never revealed whose eye <laughs> it is. Yes. And it gave me chills to hear Ridley Scott himself address that very scene at the beginning of Blade Runner. And he says, the reason that that is there, you think you are watching the film. The film is watching you. <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. And wow. again, there's no, there's no callback yeah. to the eye. The, 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 uh, uh, you don't know whose it is. Right. I mean, you know, it doesn't pull back to reveal a face. It's just, you're flying over LA right. and this eye, which is reflecting the explosions of the smokestacks mm-hmm. of the, of the, uh, industrial landscape right. wasteland of Los Angeles is watching you yeah very 1984 yeah absolutely and and it's funny because i was thinking back and going in almost all the science fiction we've gotten up to this point with the exception of planet of the apes which is a different thing we have always gotten a fair share of neato of look at the future yeah look at the cool stuff even in alien which is a really dark film it's still we're traveling in space and Mm -hmm. we're seeing aliens and different these beautiful designs and in this movie it's it's saying your future might not be so good yeah, you know this is this, look at what the real future is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Here are the consequences of the choices we're making. And, and, and one thing just about that effect shot because we just have to keep reminding our audience that every single thing they see is real. Yeah, even and, you know even if it's a matte painting, like somebody really painted that. Yeah. and this shot. 
going up through those smokestacks and everything. I think it's like 17 passes. These are motion-controlled cameras that have to do pass after pass after pass. It's forced perspective Mm -hmm. on the way they did these kind of etched-out little uh, model sessions so that things are bigger in the foreground and getting smaller and smaller to create the sense of depth. And each explosion is its own pass. Like, I mean, the time, the weeks of detailed by hand work that it takes to make a shot like this yeah, is no CGI, not even you know, no, not right. even Blade Runner. I mean, the first CGI shot ever was used in Wrath of Khan yeah. for the Genesis paint right. sequence, but that was like not even this it was nothing. CGI before anybody knew what CGI was. Right. Yeah. And at, you know, after this amazing effects and music opening, we go right into this very strange and always to me really uh, distressing interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the under- tension in it is really high. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're in a desert. Walking along in the sand when all of a sudden... Is this the test now? Yes. You're in a desert walking along in the sand when all of a sudden you look down... What? What desert? It doesn't make any difference what desert is completely hypothetical. But how come I'd be there? Maybe you're fed up. Maybe you want to be by yourself. Who knows? You look down and you see a tortoise, Leon. It's crawling towards you. Tortoise? What's that? You know what a turtle is? Of course. Same thing. We don't understand what's happening. We don't know right. why we're here. We don't know what these questions are. And it's stressful, and we don't know why it's stressful. Right. Well, and also the sounds of everything, right? The, 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 the electronic sounds he brings over from Alien. The idea of the clip. You yeah, hear these right. things. Yeah, you, hear you these do themes. hear sounds. Uh, the sound effects are very uh, uh, reminiscent of yes. Aliens, which, which is just three years before. Right. But so, so when uh, Leon is taking the Voight comp test, yeah, uh, which is being used to determine whether or not he's a replicant. Right. So the question is, you know, he comes in, he sits down, and uh, Brian James, the great, the oh, late, the late great right. actor Brian James, yes. uh, is being as Leon is being given the Voight contest, and it's a it's an unnerving sequence because mm-hmm. not only is there a tension between these guys, but you don't know, don't understand it. What, why is why are they doing like what kind of an interview yeah, is this? Yeah, and also the way he's cutting him off in the questions unsettles you, right? From yeah. the beginning, you're unsettled with the score, with the sound, with the factories, with the fire, all this stuff. Then this interview, and the interview is unsettling too because it's not a normal conversation. It's not clipped at a normal pace. It's faster. It's cu- it's more jarring. It's cutting. The, there's no respect being given one way or the other, right? And then there's a pullback. Well, these are just questions and answers to your query. They're given to me, blah, blah, blah. And then boom. By the way, A, I can't tell you how many times I've said in answer to your query. In answer to your query <laughs> is just a thing that comes out of my mouth all the That's time. That's awesome. Um, uh, and the thing, too, is you sense that this is important. Yeah. That something really serious is happening, but you don't know what that serious thing is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very distressing scene. Well, let me ask you, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of your mother? My mother? I'll tell you about my mother. Let me tell you about my mother. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. Shocking. Well, and it's loud. And through the wall. Yes, through and the it's wall. Loud, right, yeah, exactly. It is on loud and he goes through mm-hmm. the damn wall. Right. By, by the way, the actor who's doing the interview is a guy named Morgan Paul, and he oh. was the the guy who played Harrison Ford's parts in all the auditions. So he was the reader oh, that Ridley Scott funny. used. And after they finish all this, and he was, you know, because yeah. you're an actor, you're happy he got to meet Ridley Scott's, but it really said, hey, we might have something for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was uh, doing all the screen tests with like Sean Young and everything. That's great. Uh, now we get to meet Harrison Ford. We yeah. talked about his Deckard. Uh, and we get to also meet the streets of Los Angeles mm-hmm. in this 
Wow. Which feels like Tokyo, right? It feels a little like like Los Angeles, Tokyo, right? Like what happened in Big Hero 6, San Frocchio or whatever they have. It feels the same. I play for watching Big Hero 6 because it was, you know, the East meets the West. Exactly. And, uh, you know, he's eating Chinese food. Yeah. Uh, You know, uh, four. No, two, two, four. (laughs) I love that. Uh, And noodles. And, you know, he's sitting there. He's reading the paper. And he's like looking up. He sees the the, the airship that says, off world colonies. A new world. Begin again. And, uh, and. And then he's uh, he's interrupted by Gaff. Gaff, yeah. Edward James Olmos, yeah, who I love. He's one of my favorite actors. He's yeah. a fantastic actor. And uh, what I learned is that a lot of the, the city speak, all that stuff, that's his. Edward James Olmos came up city with that. Speak, oh, wow. right? That's a, that's a, another language. Yeah. yeah. He's saying you're under arrest, Mr. Decker. Got the wrong guy, pal. Lofa, negojma, devaja play. He say you brave runner. Tell him I'm eating. <laughs> well, and and that Edward James almost said he should he you know because Ridley Scott had this idea of this multicultural world, mm-hmm. which you know you look at Los Angeles today, it is it is the most I believe most culturally diverse city on the planet. I agree. Um, and, yeah. um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and and so Edward James almost said he should speak some pigeon of. And I think there's Hungarian, oh. there's Chinese, there's French, there's all these different languages mm-hmm. that he's speaking. And again, this is where, having seen the theatrical version so many times, I can't not hear Harrison Ford say, you know, of course I understood the lingo, but yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't going to make this easy on him. You know, like yeah. I, that's just in my head because I've seen it so many times. Right. Uh, right. So Harrison Ford goes off with Edward James Olmos, and we, we got us. I think you mentioned it before. Yeah. His look in this movie is spectacular. Yeah. You know, and and this goes to just a filmmaking thing, in general directors out there, don't make your characters neutral. Yeah. There were so many students where I asked them, what kind of costumes are your characters wearing? And they go, oh, jeans and a t-shirt. Now, I wear jeans and a t-shirt like every day. <laughs> I wear it all the time. Yeah. But that's that's not, that is a boring costume choice. Right. Edward James Almost in Blade Runner is not a boring costume. He is a dandy. Yes. He is like every little bit of him is to the nines. Mm-hmm. And he's what, got a cane. Yeah. He's got a cane. Which which again evokes the best of noir because of Maltese Falcon. Like there's, there's these little subtle homages to noir that are there if you have them in your subconscious. He's hitting you on certain levels. The way the hat, the brim of the hat, everything about it just screams... Uh, uh, the noir stuff that you remember from the 40s and 50s. And for me, personally, I've always loved this idea because there's not a lot of Latinos in sci-fi. We don't seem to break this barrier a lot. And so to know that Gaff was Edward James almost meant so much to me growing up. And because I became a huge Miami Vice fan as well, to go back and see the movie again and again with Edward James almost and of course Zoot Suit as well. But like, this is the one. And they don't make a big deal Edward James almost in Zoot Suit is like, a miracle. Yeah. His performance yes. is so inta- amazing. Agreed. And yeah. Stand and Deliver. He's fantastic in that oh, as well. Yeah. But the thing with him is that there's no comment made about it. He doesn't speak Spanish. So you know he's Spanish. It doesn't effing matter. Right. He is who he is. His name is Gaff. And he is given a he is given very little screen time, but he makes the most out of it as I, an actor I, in, would. In, in fact, a guys, would. he makes so much of his, his screen time, yeah. his brief screen time. And barely that, any lines. Yeah. And hardly any lines. But gentlemen, the movie is called Blade Runner. You think the movie's about Harrison Ford? You think the movie is about Deckard? The movie, Blade Runner, is about Gaff. Listen to this. Okay, hold on. This is a controversial statement. Wait. The movie Blade Runner is about Edward James Olmos. What? Now, this is a comment I am making at the top of the show. 
and we are going to revisit it at the end of the show. Listen, it's going to leave okay. you listening with that little <laughs> nugget. That's good because I movie, actually Blade Runner Gaff is the Blade Runner. Wow. Let's continue, shall we? Okay, so, 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 uh, we Rick go meet Emmett Decker, Walsh, right? Emmett Walsh, who but is, but before that, the... you, you get in the spinner. Yes. Oh, in the spinner, sure. Right. You get in the spinner with Gaff, and you're hearing a lot of the sort of sound effects that you heard yes. in Alien. So the spinner ascends, the exhaust mm-hmm. shoots out from the bottom of the spinner, yeah, it lifts that. off, and the score kicks in. Yeah. Wee, wee. <laughs> and you are flying above LA. Yeah. You are seeing the, the some of the buildings look very much like the past. Yes. Most of them look very much like the future. Mm-hmm. And if you look closely, you could see an upright Millennium Falcon. Oh, yes. Yes, you could oh. see an upright yes. Millennium Falcon if you're looking closer in the foreground right. during that scene. Right. And Harrison Ford, you know, uh, Deckard is eating his noodles yeah. along the ride. Yep. And you're 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 above Los Angeles, thinking this is both beautiful and uh, menacing. Yeah. At the same time. Yeah. Absolutely. And then it descends. Okay, you're above Los Angeles, futuristic. Yeah. And then when you get back down to earth in the literal sense, you are in Union Station. Union Station. Yeah. Which is where you know the police are. Which is where we we meet uh, Emmett Walsh. Yep. Um, who's a great character actor, oh, yeah. plays a truly horrible person in this, <laughs> and he pressures Deckard into, "You got, I need the old magic back. You got to yeah. come back and be a Blade Runner one more Stop time. Stop right where you are. If you're not one of us, you're little people. Yeah. Um, and again, I hear the voiceover. I can hear the voiceover for that uh. moment. So, and, and, and Deckard agrees, and mm-hmm. now we're going to get a briefing where we're going to replay this interview. No choice, huh, pal? No choice, pal. <laughs> yeah, he's a horrible person. So, yeah, he's yeah. a mean person. So we get that interview, and it's it's so funny. The interview uh, are different takes. You can tell it's a different take than the one they used in what we just watched. Right. He's more relaxed in the delivery, Brian James is, in the delivery of these lines that he said before. Let me mm. tell you about my mother. It isn't as menacing. Yeah, you're right. It's it a little like more relaxed, different takes. Which, yeah. to me, speaks to something, because if we're having him voiceover, it's supposed to be how Harrison Ford sees it, right? If he's the voiceover, he's the eyes and ears that we're supposed to be following okay. as the protagonist. And so maybe that's what he sees when he's looking at this, because why? If he's a replicant, he won't see the evil of... Of another replicant he sees the logic of the replicant so to me in that moment he is watching this interview and he does not see the menace of brian james he understands brian james's uh uh resistance to the questions now now the original cut of the film and that's and my opinion could, no, no, no 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 listen that is an excellent an excellent perspective and it's not something i ever thought about well i always surprise you Scott. that yes you definitely <laughs> always surprised me and i am i'm a happy person for it me too. that's what me makes too. you Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but in the original uh, dialogue, yeah. M. Emmett Walsh, uh, he says that six skin jobs escaped. Right. So four of them, you got Roy Battery, you got Pris, you got Zora, and you got Leon. Who are the other two? Right. Well, they, he says in the in extended edition that they got burnt in the whatever, yeah. electric fields or One whatever. One got burnt in the electric yeah. field. But... But until the voiceover was changed for the final oh, cut. Oh, interesting. Because that would be Rachel and Deckard. Deckard. Oh, son of a bitch. Okay, but now now you could argue that, that okay, wow. well, he, he fixed the dialogue. But right. that doesn't make sense. But that, that's, that, no, that, but that doesn't make sense. Because he would remember if he had escaped. But, but 
he is a replicant. He is programmed. Sure. Mm-hmm. So maybe his programming was adjusted, and now he they're right, using they give them a, they're using remember, a can replicant you, can to hunt down the other replicants <laughs> because again, the Blade Runner in this film is Gaff. Here's why this isn't true, and I'm not trying to because at least for I one will of prove them, you wrong, sir. At least for one of them, they had cast. The uh, the fifth replicant, oh, the woman. Okay. They had written the scenes and they ran out of money and didn't do it. So the, okay. so it can't be Rachel. Okay. Okay. Or or at least one of those two cannot be one of these six. That's fair. But <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just going to pose this question again, and I will I will I will revisit at the end of this broadcast. Yeah. Why is it that every single time Deckard gets rid of one of the replicants? Whether it's he actually kills him or someone else kills one of the mm-hmm. replicants, like uh, you know when Leon Rachel got Cone, shot yeah. in the head, Gaff is there. He's always there <laughs> right afterwards. He That's always the cavalry shows up yeah. after the fact. How, how close after? Very close how, after. How do you know? Because you're watching the film. You see him. You're watching the film. Like after Zora, yeah, right. dies. Gaff shows up. Yes. How okay. long does it take before Gaff shows up? Gaff shows up right there. Yeah. Like, you know, he goes, after after Zora dies, uh, Decker goes to get a drink. Yes. He goes, uh, is this okay? He goes, yeah, I'll take it. And then uh, Gaff walks up right behind him and hits mm-hmm. him with a hammer. Yep. Mm, that's after, true. You're right. After Leon dies. Well, no, after Leon dies. Well, Gaff was just there. Before, right before right Leon before, dies, right, right before, before Leon, Gaff has just been right, there. Right, right. Then, Gaff was there right. with uh, Emmett Walsh. Right, right. Okay, so then because he, he says there's four, because by this point he realizes Rachel is a replicant, and he says there's four. And he says no, 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 there's three. And then, and, goes, and no, then no, no, no. even after, even after Batty dies, yeah, at the end right. of the film, there, there's that's the right, he's right there. Shows up, <laughs> he's right there. Interesting, he's right there, and Gaff says. You've done a man's job, sir. I guess you're through, huh? He goes, finish. And that's when the whole, yeah. it's too bad you won't live. But right after that massive fight with Batty, and he is beaten, bleeding, and exhausted, the spinner rises, yeah. and he gets out and says, you've done a man's job because yeah. you are not a man. You are a replicant. Interesting. Well, that's certainly Gaff evidence that, is the Blade Runner. Well, that's certainly evidence that uh, he's a replicant. Yeah. And if Whether you disagree with me, hit me up on Twitter at MovieMans <laughs> and tell me that I am full of shit. All right, let's you are wrong. Oh, so we're heading off. Uh, okay, okay. Now, now during the briefing where Deckard is introduced to each of the four replicants. Yeah. You know, you're, you're seeing the interview with Leon. Yeah. Then you see uh, Zora. I love, I love uh, Emma Walsh's line. He goes, Talk about Beauty and the Beast. She's both. Then you meet Pris, mm-hmm. a pleasure skin job. Right. And then, and then I think the last one is Batty, right? Yeah. Is the yeah. last one of Batty? Course, the score kicks in when he shows up. You know, he goes, uh, there's a skin, there's a, there's a replicant at, uh, at uh, Terrell's store. I want you to use the boy comp machine test it out make sure it works and he goes and what if it doesn't work and he just kind of looks at him mm. so then okay so the next scene is Deckard is going to Terrell yeah it's beautiful design of the exterior of that building unbelievable yeah. and the interior yes oh gorgeous the reveal when the spinner lands the inside of Terrell's office yeah 
that this huge, massive office, the cinematography, the lighting of that scene is one of the most beautifully mm-hmm. lit scenes I have ever seen. Yeah. And it starts off with the owl flying across the room right. and the sun is coming through the window mm-hmm. and the sunset is very, very red because of all the pollution in the air. And the score kicks in yeah. and it's a beautiful score. Do you like our owl? And we're introduced to Rachel. Now, I want to say something real quick. To me, what's so interesting about this whole sequence is it's very Egyptian. Absolutely. It evokes Egyptian feeling, right? The the building on the outside feels like a pyramid. On the inside, it feels like those old school Egyptian yep. throne rooms with the owl, which is a symbol of the Egyptian times as well. And the, the long table, all of it, and the sunlight. And it, and when the sunlight, when they put the shades oh, down oh, before the shade they do down, the test. And, and you know, but you have get, the, yeah. uh, the sunlight like uh, shining off the water and yeah. the water is yeah. uh, you know the light from the water is going against oh, the right. wall yeah. like I, I god only knows how how long it took for them to light that scene yeah. but a um, cu- couple of things i just want to jump in real fast yeah. about it being egyptian first thing is egyptian is very art deco because art deco is strongly influenced by the opening of tutankhamun's tomb oh wow and that's what a lot of those if you look at art deco stuff yeah. a lot of it comes from that egyptian fad the other interesting thing about it is originally and they didn't shoot this they that they were going to have Terrell is dead and that is also a replicant oh. and he is living in a his body is in a sarcophagus underneath that thing so the whole pyramid thing <laughs> is makes perfect sense and then they kind of dump that yeah. uh, which that I think is good by the way yeah. Terrell was a replicant it's only, you know to me it's like there's only so many times you can play this replicant card right you know what I mean it's like good not to have so yeah. many of them yeah. well yeah and now we, what you said we were, we're introduced to Rachel this right. is Sean Young is absolutely beautiful in this movie gorgeous in so many ways not just physically her character the 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 vulnerability of her character yet the steel the combination of both it makes you like it's this fantasy woman it really is because Deckard falls in love with her in literally like 45 minutes like it's literally no time at all because she is this unattainable uh, uh, unblemished beauty and so he can transpose his ideas his thoughts on her his ideas of of this romanticism right and she is so like uh, just powerful in her presence but not unex- not inaccessible. And I think that's what's so amazing. Unavailable versus inaccessible. These are two different things. And so I, I love the way she comes in and commands the stage and says to him, like, she's will and she even has a smirk when he says he's gonna do try he's like, not me, try it on her. And she goes, Yeah, she smirks. She smirks because yeah. she yeah. thinks yeah, yeah, yeah. she's yeah, but the, but the, she but the way she sort of challenges him. him, she says, May I ask you a personal question? Sure. Have you ever retired a human by mistake? No. But in your position, that is a risk. And then Terrell comes in. Yeah. Is this to be an empathy test? Capillary dilation of the so-called blush response? Fluctuation of the pupil? Involuntary dilation of the iris? We call it void comp for short. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Terrell. And the whole back and forth, uh, you know, I want to see work on a person. I want to see a negative before I provide you with a mm-hmm. positive uh, on you. And he goes, uh, try her. Yeah. And, and she has the spark. It's too bright here. It's perfect. And there's a great sense of like that she's up to the challenge. Yes. She's like, I, she, there's no, because if someone wanted to do some crazy weird test on me, I would still be nervous. <laughs> she's not nervous. Nope. She's actually enjoying it. It's your birthday. Someone gives you a casket wallet. I wouldn't accept it. Also, I'd report the person who gave it to me to the police. 
You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, plus the killing jar. I take him to the doctor. You're watching television. Suddenly you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. I'd kill it. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. She gets impatient with him. Like, is this the testing to see whether I'm a replicant or a, a lesbian, lesbian, Mr. Yeah. Deckard? Um, and, and, of course, we go through the test, and he comes up to Tyrell after, mm-hmm. uh, who is uh, Joe Turkle, by the way, that we saw in mm-hmm. The Shining. The Shining, yeah. Um, and uh, says she's a replicant. She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. It took more than 100 for Rachel, didn't it? She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is? Which, again, is the symbolism. How can it not know what it is? We are always searching for who we are. What's our destiny? Where do we belong? What are we? And other people from the outside sometimes can see us better than we see ourselves because and we're you too give close. Them, you give them the memories. Yes. She had the memories that were right. implanted. We began to recognize in them strange obsession. After all, they are emotionally inexperienced with only a few years in which to store up the experiences which you and I take for granted. If we gift them with the past... We create a cushion or pillow for their emotions, and consequently, we can control them better. Memories. You're talking about memories. And uh, that's how Deckard knew about them when Rachel went to his place. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you know, basically facing her quote-unquote mortality. Yeah. By realizing that she is a replica and she probably only has like four years. Well, and this gets into what is really good sci-fi, which is what does it mean to be human? Yeah. What do our memories mean? What is consciousness? What is the value of human life? And at what point do we value it? Because at the beginning of this movie, our setup is these aren't humans. Right. You know? And at this moment, how does it not know what it is? Right. That's saying it's still not human, even though it thinks it's human. And if we go to, uh, you know, Descartes, I think, therefore, I am. That is the, that is a... We don't have really a good definition of consciousness, but that's probably the one that goes around the most. Mm -hmm. And these characters clearly think at this moment, Mm -hmm. it took over 100 questions to answer it. It does not know what it is. It's clearly thinking. So it's passing the Cartesian test, but it's not passing Deckard's test or the tests of the society at this moment. And that's great you bring that up, Steve, because Pris says that. Near the end of the film, I think therefore I am. He, she says it to, to uh, so, Sebastian, Sebastian or to Sebastian. Yeah, to JF. So like there, that that's all there, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So okay, so one, one, one quick thing I want to say just about costumes, which is this oh. movie is so influential, is that Sean Young comes out in these forties big yes. shoulder pad outfits. Yes, once again, what do we see four or five years later in the eighties in women's fashion? Right. Shoulder, shoulder pads, big huge shoulder pads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now I'm not saying that I know that that comes from Blade Runner. Right. But it's in Blade Runner. But right. Maybe it did. Yeah. And, but it's yep. and it's also evocative of noir. Of these, this is what we noir, yeah. noir films. And also her hairstyle is very 40s. Well, and one of the right. things that I know that Ridley Scott talked about is that fashion is cyclical. Yeah. You know, and we know this because we saw the 70s come back in the 90s yep. and we see the 60s come back in the 80s. And so he's looking at things and going, mm-hmm. 
the 40s are back. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's part of what's happening within this film. So uh, this is a detective story. And so we go off. Uh, we, we have that key piece of information we get in the interview, which is the address. And we go back to where Leon lived. Yeah. Um, and by the way, this is shot as a pickup. That's not Harrison Ford's arm reaching into that bathtub. Right. It is, in fact, Morgan Paul, our guy who kind of looks like Harrison Ford, oh, who is our guy funny. who was uh, doing the interview at the beginning of the movie. Yes. And the name yeah. of the place is the Yukon, right? Isn't that the name of the place they go to? The ho- Yeah, I the think hotel? So. The place he stays. Yeah. Okay, I looked this up, the symbolism of a Yukon. It holds the earliest evidence of the presence of human occupation in North America. And I thought this was a perfect thing to wow. use because it is this idea of human occupation this idea of the replicants are the first generation of this type of huge slash human slash cyborg whatever you want to call it you know and in fact even the opening scroll which we haven't talked about yet i love that replicant is in red i love that idea because in in most by in most of the study bibles jesus christ's words are in red and this Mm. idea of sacrifice for the greater sacrifice for the better so there's so much about here that could be read into it and maybe i'm way off base and really laugh at me right now but like this idea of the yukon makes sense to me as well to call it that this idea of the beginning this first first creation of the first generation so love it yeah so we're, so, so we're we're at Leon's apartment, yes. and Leon was going to go back there because he wanted right. to get his precious Pictures. photos. Right, yeah. and uh, we get the snake scale from the bathtub. Yes, yep. and we also see uh, the second time that Gaff does an origami. Right, yep, and this becomes a key thing. These mm-hmm. origami, beautiful character point. And it's going to be a plant and a payoff. The dude with a large time. penis. Yes. And the first time it's a chicken because Deck- Deckard is initially refusing to do it, which is why he does the chicken. The second is large penis because Deckard is, you know, he's becoming this, he's embracing this idea of going after it. Yeah. Um, I never thought about that. That's really? Great. No, no, oh, I never okay. thought that's awesome. Okay. Um, uh, so we're going to go, we, we, uh, Leon goes and meets Roy. Mm-hmm. We meet Rutger Hauer for the first time. Oh, time enough. <laughs> R- you see Howard. the hand, you see the hand clutching because he's dying. Yes. Because that's what happens at the end of the film. You know, yeah. he pushes the nail through his hand to keep it alive. Yeah. But he's in the phone booth and he, he his hand clenches like time enough. Like this is it. He's on his last yeah. he's on his last breath. Yeah. You know, gets out, says to land, you get your photos and he goes, No, someone was there. Was it a man? A man? Oh. And he shakes his head and he goes, Police Man, <laughs> and then they walk off, and it's a, again beautiful. It's shot. You have yeah. the, the 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 glowing graffiti of the uh, the Japanese, yeah. and the, uh, the, the 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 cans on fire, and the, the bikers go by, right? And they go to. I just do eyes. Morphology, longevity, incept dates. Don't know. I, I don't know such stuff. I just do eyes. Just eyes. Genetic design. Just eyes. You Nexus, huh? I design your eyes. James Hong. I just do eyes. I love him. And part part I can't stop. It's like Big Trouble in Little China is such a big movie for me. And he is so great. And he's just one of these great iconic actors. Yes. 
that you see in all sorts of movies you love. He is, he's great in this scene. And he looks the same age. And he's like Max von Sydow. He has been 70 years old since the first time I've seen him. Yeah, he until always looked old. It's like Steve Martin. Steve Martin's always yeah. looked like an old man. Yes, right. Yeah. And the, this <laughs> was really stuff. shot in a uh, cold storage place. Oh, wow. Yeah. It is really cold. They had major problems with lights. The lights were smoking. The actress yeah. couldn't breathe. And again, Ridley, not nice to his actors. <laughs> he, he doesn't really care. Uh, it was a pretty, pretty brutal shoot. But the scene is great. <sighs> And, and, you know, yeah. Roy is a great, great bad guy. Questions. I don't know answers. Who does? Tyro. Yes, it, he it's is. It's one of the great bad guys and definitely the best character that Rucker Howard has ever played. Absolutely. And not... But Better than Blind Fury? <laughs> Better than Blind Fury, <laughs> what? yes. Okay. He's, he's not necessarily a bad guy. He's trying to live. He's trying to figure out how to live. To him, but when he obviously when he kills Terrell, that's you can you, you can see what feeling you feel about that. But he's trying to find out. They used them as slaves. They created them to be slaves, right? He says this at the end of the film: "Live in fear. This is what it's like to be a slave." You know, and so this is. I don't see him necessarily as a bad guy. When I was younger, absolutely. But as I'm older now, I see what he's trying to do. I understand his logic. Is he doing it the right way? No, because he's torturing people. He's hurting people. What he does to James Hong in that scene makes him freeze to death to give him the information. Information. So there's he has because he doesn't have time to be nice or to be to take his like he has to be ruthless. By know? the way, I couldn't agree more. And as soon as yeah. I said bad guy, I didn't like the fact okay. that I said it. And and slight spoiler alert: I have my own theory that we're going to get to at the end. Oh, of this great! Film. Oh. Well, let's um, get to it. So, yeah. so okay, so uh, we get a little bit more information. We find out about this name, J.F. Sebastian. Yeah, that's the guy to get to Tyrell. Mm -hmm. And then we go back to Deckard, who goes home to his fascinatingly designed apartment. Yes, and very tall. Uh, yeah, number ninety-seven. He's on the ninety-seven floor, floor. <laughs> and uh, and goes in and who's waiting for him in his apartment? But Rachel, who's Rachel. waiting for him in the elevator? Yeah, is Rachel, and she, he pulls scene, the, the door gun closes. He takes out his blaster, yeah. and, you know, and then and then listen, you know, she she's now on to the fact yes. that that she's a replicant. You think I'm a replicant, don't you? Remember when you were six? You and your brother snuck into an empty building through a basement window. You were going to play doctor. He showed you his. And when it got to be your turn, you chickened and ran. Remember that? You ever tell anybody that? Your mother, Tyrell, anybody? Huh? You remember the spider that lived in a bush outside your window? Orange body, green legs. Watched her build a web all summer. And one day there's a big egg in it. The egg hatched. The egg hatched? Yeah. And a hundred baby spiders came out. And they ate her. Implants. Those aren't your memories. They're somebody else's. They're Tyrell's nieces. And he's like being totally insensitive. And he like It is so horrible yes. what he does to her in this yeah. moment. He's very callous. It is completely unfeeling. Yeah. Which part of me, by the way, goes maybe, and that's evidence that he's a replicant. Well, maybe. No but, human empathy here at all. No, but it, but it's very evocative of noir stuff. Humphrey Bogart is very callous in all the films he's True. in, right? With yeah. all the women that he interacts with. And later on, he physically pushes her against the wall, which we'll get to that scene at some point. But like, this is his approach. This is a very noir approach to the situation. It's unknowingly callous. He isn't malicious on purpose. He catches himself when he realizes what he says and she storms out. And that's why he calls her from the bar when he goes to see Zora. He's trying to apologize in his ham-handed way. It's not my kind of place. Right. And she's 
trying. She's she lets him in a little bit, and the, so but he's very callous. You're right. It's brutal. It's, yeah, but it's then he scene. you know he shows remorse. He's like you know you want a drink, and he goes to get her a drink, and she's you know yes. when he comes back, she's out the door. Yeah. So you know, uh, and and while all this is uh, going on, the back and forth between Deckard and Rachel, you hear Rachel's theme for the first time. Yes, mm, Rachel's great, theme, yeah. the beautiful score. Uh, uh, and and it's uh, something that, that happens you know later in the film. Yeah. Uh, that beautiful piano yeah. score. It's just so gorgeous. And then and then listen. Now we finally meet Pris and Jay of Sebastian. Right. It's a outside, great intro. Yeah. Out, right outside mm-hmm. the Bradbury Building, which is a and a Los Angeles landmark. Yeah. And I when I first moved to L.A., one of the first thing I did was I got to see the Bradbury Building <laughs> at Third and Broadway downtown. And you walk in that building, and it looks just like Blade Runner. <laughs> it's still- I disagree. I think it looks. I think it's gorgeous, and I think you should visit it and go walk in and look. But it looks amazing. But it is beautiful and pristine yeah. and clean. So. So it doesn't look like Blade Runner to me. I know that it's the same building because the way that Blade Runner is dressed is so gritty and dark Mm. and wet and messy and grungy and old. And the Bradbury building is beautifully preserved. But if you take away the rain, if you take away the moody lighting, then that's the Bradbury building. It doesn't look like even if you even with all that light to accentuate the scene, like you talk about the back lots of Warner Brothers, how you look at the back lot now and you're like, oh, there's like, I can't believe they shot Blade Runner here. But as soon as you walk into the Bradbury building, it looks it looks just like it. Well, not just like it, but enough like it because they didn't have to do much to change the Mm -hmm. look of the building. The actual architecture, it's remarkable architecture. It's kind of an anomaly architecturally is my understanding. It doesn't look like any other building in Los Angeles. It's very much its own thing built by an architect that didn't do a lot of other stuff. Um, And one thing that I just found out is that people were working in the building when they were shooting. And so every single night, they shot all nights, they had to clean everything out and make it perfect so people could come and work and redress oh so then God. start shooting. I don't know how you could possibly yeah, they do shot that. at night. You know, they would, they would put the water everywhere and the lighting yeah. and then have everything like brand spanking new in time for the next morning when people would come in to go right. to work. How awesome would that be to go to work at the Bradbury building? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be awesome. So so then what, what happens next now? We go well, to- well, we meet. So we meet. Uh, so we have yeah. Daryl Hannah and J.F. Sebastian, William Sanderson. Right. Their relationship is really kind of sweet and mm-hmm. lovely. And uh, we get well, some. She's using him, right? She is using. She him. is, and she's oh, no question about it. When, when they meet outside, he's like, "Say no, you want to come in?" Yeah, you know. And she's, oh. he's like, she's like, "Oh, I don't have any place to go. Whatever, right. I'm really hungry." Right. And he goes, "Oh, you want to come up?" And 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 when when uh, Sebastian turns her back on Pris to sort of lead the way, the look yeah. that Pris gives him, yeah. she is using him. Yep. She's true. taking advantage of it's him. It's right. true, absolutely. Yeah. Now, one of my questions is because so. Is how at what point does JF Sebastian recognize that these are Nexus Six or that these are when replicants? Batty shows up? Yeah, when Batty shows when up. Batty shows up. But when they yeah. go up to Sebastian's apartment, right. you know she is playing into him because you know she's very pretty, she's mm-hmm. young, and they go up to his apartment and you realize that he's like this lonely guy right. who lives with his toys. Good evening, JF. Home yeah. again, home again, jiggity jig. <laughs> you know, and then all the you know the real actors. Yeah. Real actors, not animatronics, not special effects. Real actors, uh, uh, little people made up mm-hmm. to walk around like they're toys. Mm-hmm. And 
or mannequins. Right. You know, some of them are mannequins. But but it's uh again, all the lighting in Sebastian's apartment is gorgeous. Yeah, gorgeous. Yep. Absolutely gorgeous. Yep. Um we have a unicorn dream, depending on what version you okay. watch. Yes. Now we're we're talking about the final cut. And the final cut version of the unicorn dream, the unicorn dream is a little longer than it was in the director's cut. Right. So this is where this is the scene that firmly establishes more than any other scene in the film because of the way it, it, it ties to the end that Deckard is a replicant. Mm. Now, you have Deckard hunched over the piano, playing the piano, just sort of out of it, having a daydream. And then you hear the, the music swells and you see the unicorn. And, and in the final cut, there's a close-up of Harrison Ford where he's just kind of like out of it, like, like not completely... Mm-hmm. Like, like there's a glitch in right. it. Okay. Now he's has a dream of a unicorn, the last origami. Yes. That's outside of his apartment. Yes. When he escapes with Rachel. Yes. Is a unicorn. A silver unicorn. Yes. So, how did Gaff know <laughs> what Deckard was dreaming? Oh. Because the dream is on file. <laughs> Because he is a replicant. Damn. Because Gaff is the Blade Runner of this story. Here, son of a bitch. This is great. First of all, there's no question that the unicorn is evidence or is used as evidence that he's a replicant. Right. Whether or not that means Gaff is the Blade Runner. I don't know. Clearly, Gaff is, Gaff is on the job. <laughs> He's the Blade Runner. Because <laughs> right. he could have left the unicorn there in a symbol of Rachel. Because in a way, when he says it's a shame she won't live, he remembers that in that moment. It's uh, Gaff letting her live. He, he, he could have taken her out. He has every right to take it's Rachel too bad out. She won't live. Right. It's too bad but she won't live. She but does. then again, who does? Which is great. But, and by the way, yeah. clearly he's not a very good Blade Runner. If the Blade... The- purpose definition of a blade runner is mm-hmm. someone who kills replicants his his main action is to not kill anybody well, but, to watch. but that's because but that's because he was letting the replicant do his dirty yep. work for him yep. and yes, he but lets him these live last two... he lets him live because yeah. he's done a man's job okay <laughs> okay I, I, i'm fine with it uh, one thing i want to bring up because we're talking about this unicorn thing is yeah. and this is what we can't know is I that's very thin storytelling. That is the main evidence Ooh. of of Deckard being a replicant. He has a dream about a unicorn. At the end of the movie, someone makes a, a unicorn. And what I really wonder, and I, because when I went to see the director's cut, yeah, I had heard articles in Entertainment Weekly or whatever. Oh, in this version, Deckard's a replicant. So I and I had already seen the movie over and over again. Right. So I can't see that movie in fresh eyes and go, uh, is the storytelling clear enough that? Would 100% of the audience walk out of that go, hey, that guy's a replicant because of the unicorn thing? I right. don't think so. No, I, think, it's I fair. think that's very thin. And I think, and it's not a criticism. It's just, you know, sometimes when you're making a film, there are some things you absolutely need 100% of the audience to understand, to right. understand the film. And there are other things where 80% of the audience understands. And there's some things where maybe 20% of the audience goes, oh, you know, I think that uh, he's actually a replicant because <laughs> did you notice that? And then people start talking and that's right. okay. And to me, this seems like something that's on a pretty low percentage of if people knew nothing about the film before they saw it. Mm-hmm. Like how, what percentage of people would actually walk out right after it and go, he's a replicant, you know? But you see, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, the it's not a criticism. That, that it was, yeah. that, that even, even after the director's cut came out and the dream sequence was included, I still think that it's uh, it's a it's a great thing yeah. that when it's so subtle 
that people pick up on it yeah. and that it goes, well, even the, the 1992 version of, of going viral, yeah. which meant that it was That's, just like in magazines yeah, and stuff yeah, yeah. like that. Because I remember here, I remember a friend of mine handed me an article or something. Yeah. It was before the internet. It's exactly what it did. It went 1992 viral. Yeah. And went, oh, shit. Yeah. And, but you see, that, and yeah. that's the beauty of it, that even when the, when the Final Cut came out in 2007, I interviewed Ridley Scott. And uh, definitely it was a bucket list interview because it was for Blade Runner. Wow. And he had to put his leg up on a chair and put ice on it because he sprained his ankle playing tennis. <laughs> that's what I remember about it. But he was super, super nice. So we're talking about the film. So I asked him, Point blank. All right. Yes or no. Is Deckard a replicant? He goes, what do you think? I said, yes, he is. He goes, why do you think that? And I said, well, the dream sequence, the unicorn, the origami of the unicorn, it, it just, it, it has, he has to be a replicant. He goes, you're right. Well, there you go. He said, you're right. Now, what I didn't ask him was if Gaff was the real Blade Runner, <laughs> but I wish I did. Well, when Dan, you do, next time, yeah. When you do the, the interview with him after the super final, this is really the <laughs> last <laughs> time. Yeah, yeah. Then the you final, can ask that Final cut. Um, okay, yeah. so uh, now we have one of the a scene that just stuck with me forever, which yeah. is Enhanced Section Three Hundred Seven. Yeah. I love this. I mean, this is such a geeky thing, and of course, we live in the world where we're doing that by spreading our pinching and zooming. Now it is. It is forensics. Uh, by way of Google Maps. Yeah, yeah. it's yep. uh, yeah. you're right. I didn't, I didn't equate it with like you know, you know, you know spreading the thing on your phone and. Right. Uh, but that's what it is. It's uh, you're you're doing forensic evidence, just through pictures. You know, yeah. uh, zoom, zoom. No, pull back. Uh, go to the right. Uh, three three six. Uh, stop. Zoom in there. Uh, pull back. You know, three eighty six. I mean, it's like it's so what? cool. Yeah. And, and it's funny. I. I I remember, one of the things you have to do when you're doing science fiction is you have to imagine the future. Yeah. So you have to try to figure out what is science going to come up with? How is the world going to work? And there's a great quote I always love from Walt Disney, which is they're making Disneyland. And he says, really, we should call Tomorrowland Yesterdayland. Hmm. Because whatever we imagine is the future is always the 1967 version of the future. It yeah. actually becomes the past really fast. And this is one I was thinking about. I was like, this is 1982. We, no one's seen a mouse or almost no yeah. one has seen a mouse on a computer. And here we are in 2017 and we're two years before this movie is supposed to take place. And what's our new technology we're using all the time? Voice recognition. Right? Yeah. Right. You know, we're Siri. actually going into Siri and Alexa and all yeah. those things. Even FaceTiming. FaceTime, we're doing yeah. now as you would he show when he calls Rachel from the bar. That's Absolutely. face. That's essentially FaceTiming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Star Trek did that in 1966. Yeah. Yes, right. We, we also take a look. He's got this scale. He takes this scale down to this woman in this great scene to try to figure out who made this scale. Is it yes. a fish? No, snake. All right. And that leads us off to the snake guy, yeah. and that leads us off to Zora. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, you're the scene and the market. You know, this is downtown LA. Yeah. Uh, it is it is called Atomoid Row. Because in the beginning of the film, or or when he meets Rachel, when Decker meets Rachel, the uh, owl is not real. Right. So even though this was not established in the narrative of the film, when Deckard is going around the market, he's looking for the vendor who designed the snake. The snake isn't real either. You think right. I could afford a real snake? Yeah. And you see the ostrich walk by him? These are all animoids. They're all right. animal versions of replicants. Right. I don't know why 
maybe global warming. Who the hell knows? Right. It's raining in Los Angeles. Now, it rains a lot this year in Los Angeles, yeah. but normally it never rains here. Mm-hmm. And you're watching a film about the future of LA where it rains all the time. Yeah. Well, this is also, it's a weird noir thing because in, in classic noir, most of which is in LA, yeah. people rains. are always in these trench coats. Yeah. It's always mm-hmm. like, nobody's wearing short sleeve shirts dark, in the yeah. sun. Yeah, like the, the vision of what noir LA yeah. is is not what I'm looking seeing out the window right now. Well, this is, and this whole bar sequence is so great. The whole, this, the whole scene, you know, once again, it's him trying to apologize to Rachel. You know, he, that weird guy is like, he looks a little thirsty, giving someone a house. All that's very noirish. And then the thought with Rachel, and then he plays this character trying to get through Zora's defenses, right? Excuse me, Miss Salome, can I talk to you for a minute? I'm from the American Federation of Variety Artists. Oh, yeah? I'm not here to make you join. No, ma'am. That's not my department. Actually, uh, I'm from the uh, Confidential Committee on Moral Abuses. He ends up in her in her uh, uh, dressing room, you know, and his voice changes. Like initially, he's like, hey, I'm from the association, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually he does this blinking thing where his voice comes back to normal. And th- then Joanna Cassidy, great Joanna Cassidy, you know, she does this whole sequence, does the shower, her hair into the, bl- yeah, all of that is just, her and her the hair, music yeah. is hitting, the, the, the synthesizer music is hitting. And then she comes out and puts on this like, almost futuristic Barbarella type top with the with the plastic uh, jacket and, you know, hits him in the ribs and whatever. She's onto him. When is she onto him is my sequence. And I watched it twice this or three times this scene today. When is she onto him? Because you never see her go, wait a minute, there's yeah, not a moment. You, there actually is a quick moment. Oh, there moment. is, okay. There is a quick moment. Like, you know, when he goes, he's on from the Committee of Moral Abuses. Right. Moral Abuses? You know, have you ever felt yourself to be uh, taken advantage of any way? You know, <laughs> he's like that. having this dialogue with her yeah. and she's answering his questions thinking because he changed his voice, he sounds like an idiot. Right. But then, uh, you know, he says like, you ever had a problem with like holes? He goes, holes? And 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 this is after she's blow dry her hair and she's starting to get dressed. Yeah. And she's like drying herself off. You see her like, like sort of take a look back at him, ah, like yeah. like she doesn't okay. turn around and face him, but she's something is wrong. Right, like she gets that something is wrong, and then she like you know hits him in the face and starts choking him with his tie. Right, and then she gets out of there and he goes after her. She gets disrupted. All all the, the you know that when they're when they're running down the street, when they're running down right. and the, like all the the crowds. And the crowds of misfits, and they're all dressed so differently, and and the chaos, and there's no music during this right. moment because all you're hearing are the people and and the uh, the the cross now, yeah. cross now, cross yeah, now, yeah, right. and and you know he he can't really fire her without hitting mm-hmm. someone else until he finally gets to a point where he's he's got her in his sights. Yeah. He's like, move, get out of the way, and and she's running away, and and she he's finally. Because this is the first time that he really, on his own, kills a replicant. Yes. Because, uh, you know, like like that was really the moment when he was when she was running through and he hits her yeah. and she's running through the glass and then she 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 dies and. It's a great scene. Yeah, it's a great like winter scene too, almost yeah. because of the sequences that are happening here, right? It was uh, to me, it evoked the Oranishi scene in Kill Bill when they have that fight, and after she strikes that last blow, the bride does her slow descent onto the floor. It's very reminiscent of that because it's done in slow motion, obviously in Blade Runner. But once again, it's this idea of this coldness, this kind of like you know this this aloof, this distance, you know, and you see it happening here in the, in the death scene. So, and then he has the sequence, you know, he has this 
episode, like he, I'm Deckard, I'm a rep, Blade Runner, and uh, Leon is. We see Leon watching this whole thing. So we see Leon watching Pris get killed by Deckard. Well, well, right, uh, it's and then a, it's a. Uh, 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 Zora. Zora, 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 so, Zora so, get killed so, by so Deckard. So Joanna Cassidy. But Leon is watching. Now, in the original cut and the director's cut, the scene was shot with a stunt woman. And oh, when yeah. the stunt woman is running through and, and gets shot and, and breaks through the glass, it is obviously a woman in a wig. It is obviously yeah. a stunt person. So for the final cut in 2007, they went back, reshot the scene. What? They, they, they reshot the scene with Joanna Cassidy. What? For the 2007 final cut version of Blade Runner, they, they recreated the entire scene with the glass and the lighting. And so jo- Joanna Cassidy, who looked amazing. I mean, you know, they touched it up with a little right. CGI on the face because she does look a little older. But compare the director's cut with the final cut. That's amazing. Watch both of those scenes. Okay. And like when I saw it in the theater, people were cheering and clapping because the shot matched perfectly because yeah. it was clearly Joanna Cassidy, the one she was she that was really her going <laughs> through amazing. the glass, dying. That was a forgiveness I always made about the film. Like, okay, yeah, I could tell it's a stunt person. I well, don't care. It's watch still a good the film. final cut now. I, will. That I is have Joanna the five Cassidy. Blu-ray disc thing that came it's out. A, so it's I will a have nice uh, box set. And and so um yeah. and this moment this is the moment I think where the film is shows how unique it is, mm-hmm. which is we've had our hero ostensibly kill one of the people he's been after and you don't feel good it yeah. is a sad yeah uh hard confusing emotionally moment it's a very it's fraught with a lot of stuff why because zora didn't do anything zora hasn't done anything but dance she's a replicant right she's a killer so well, why is deckard showing remorse over having just killed oh, her oh say, yeah oh you're because saying because he's a replicant he is a replicant. You can't think of any other reason why one might sh- show remorse about shooting someone well, in the back. Well, in this case, in this case, he was doing his job. Yeah, he was doing his job. But why sure. is he showing? Why you is can't he showing think of remorse? Any reason why somebody who was doing their job that involved a horrible thing might feel remorse? But over he that? wasn't showing remorse at all with really anybody up to this point. Mm. So why is he showing remorse over somebody that he was assigned to kill, someone he did not know? Because. Yeah. He's a replicant. So your only reason that someone might feel remorse for someone else is that no, they're of the same. He's not saying no, no, someone. No. He's see, saying Deckard. I, see, saying I think that case, I, I don't think. Okay, that's, what's your theory? What's my theory? What's, what, what's what, your thought? Like, why, why is he showing remorse in this yeah. scene? Why is, why is, why is Deckard standing, showing why remorse? Why is he standing over her? So, so, so why does he feel bad? And in a sense, why does the audience feel bad? Well, because they're humans. He, who, I, I who's human? Who's human? Deckard. I don't buy that. Because. Because they have souls, because they look like humans, because they have thoughts, emotions, and feelings. I mean, that's what this whole movie's about, is what is the identity of these characters? Are, but, they, but are they machines that he, have no this value? This is such a cold or character. Or do they have life value? Deckard is such a cold, emotionless mm. oh, I character. Agree. Okay? Well, and, and, so, and this is the first time he has, he has had to... This is the first, um, one of only two times, yeah. where he actually was the one who killed a replicant, because the other two died by different means. Yeah. Right. You know, one... Rachel shot, and yep. then Batty just died on his own accord. Right. But he didn't know Zora. Yeah. He didn't have time to get to know her, right. to feel bad because she was she, he killed her. He felt bad because he is a replicant, because That's certainly possible. he is not the Blade Runner. I think both your theories are possible. He could, he could be feel bad because it's a human situation and emotions and killing, but it could also be because he's a replicant, and killing her, the first time he kills an actual replicant, 
there's a new feeling inside him that he can't quite let, process. Let me ask you. Let me ask you this question: Do you think that? Uh, <laughs> do you think that killing the replicants is a cool thing to do? Well, knowing what I know about the replicants, knowing the, how they were, they, 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 because they were conscious and they were aware of their mortality and they had memories, whether they were implanted or not, and they were implanted, they were human. I know that because I've seen the movie a hundred times. Well, and, and so, so maybe if you first discover this by meeting Rachel, and then you do feel some remorse for being mean to her, which he is, and then you have a couple of other experiences, you don't think that's enough of a reason for a human right, to maybe, maybe start to feel remorse? Possibly. Why are you trying I mean, to die on this mountain? I don't understand. Both your theories can work. Well, I, I, you're trying to make him. You're trying to convince no, him. That I, I'm, he no, say I'm he's not wrong. trying to. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying that in its of itself is not great evidence for him being a replicant because there's a perfectly human explanation for why someone might feel remorse. Well, uh, again, in any other film, in any other story, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, some some I mean, people he is a replicant. You know, based on you know, I think the the movie pushes it that way. And by okay. the way, we'll find out if he's a replicant for sure in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Well, he's still alive. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe still alive, you know, for your so, lifespan. I think that Harrison Ford is one of the greatest actors, has the greatest getting beat up skill of any actor I can think Absolutely. of. Absolutely. He knows how to get his ass kicked. Mm-hmm. And he gets his ass kicked repeatedly, particularly as Indiana Jones. But yeah. man, him getting beat up by Leon, Oof. brutal. The slap, the slow slaps are yeah. fantastic. But once again, it is... It's uh, what you do to someone who is lesser than you. For lack of a better phrase, treating someone like a bitch. And that's what he does. He goes, that that scene with Leon psh, is yeah. so good. My birthday is April 10, 2017. How long do I live? Four years. He goes, wake up. Time to die. It's so it's great. great. It's such a great scene. Yeah. And he's rescued by Rachel. Yes. Rachel uh, shoots Leon in the head. In the head. So, which means she had thoughts, had second thoughts about coming down to meet him because she was, she's there in that area right there. I think she's coming to meet him at the bar or oh, she's yeah. coming to meet him. She yeah, fo- she, uh, or she uh, follows uh, him to that sequence. I, with, it's with, the only reason that she yeah, could be there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we go back to the apartment. I love the blood in the shot. Yeah. Part. Okay. So oh, let's great. talk about that scene. Okay. So they're back in Deckard's apartment yes. after, like I said, Deckard got the crap kicked out of him. Yeah. So he, he takes a little swig from the shot glass and the blood. Great. Yeah, the, 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 the suck back goes back into the glass and you yeah. see the blood in there. And Rachel... It's Harrison Ford's idea, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's Harrison great. Ford, right. Yeah. So, but Rachel is standing there and, and uh, he goes... Uh, Shakes? Me too. I get him bad. It's part of the business. I'm not in the business. I am the business. Yeah, that's Fantastic so great. Fantastic. Great line. And so, all right, guys, this is <laughs> Scott Man's Man stood up. Stand right out. Up. <laughs> he is pacing we back. We are now forth. past the halfway point of Blade Runner. Yeah, we only have. We are past <laughs> the midpoint of this minutes. film yeah. when Leon gets shot in the head. You know, we talked about how <laughs> Blade Runner, uh, maybe the Blade Runner is not Deckard, maybe the Blade Runner is Gaff. We talked about, okay, the unicorn establishes that he is probably a replicant. We have uh, talked about why, why does he show remorse standing over Zora's body. Exhibit C in the case for Rick Deckard being a replicant yeah. is this. So Deckard takes off his shirt, puts his head in the sink, yeah. in the ice. You know, He's rinsing out his mouth and the blood is dripping out of his mouth. Rachel says to him, 
What if I go north? Will you come after me? Hunt me. So Deckard is drying off, his, drying off himself with a towel. He right. goes, no. Right. I owe you one. But then in the next, next, very next scene, Deckard says, but somebody would. Yeah. Now, at that moment, at one hour and eight minutes into the film, <laughs> when he says, but somebody would. Okay. What is another sign that someone is a replicant? Their eyes glow. We saw the owl's uh, eyes glow. Uh, good yeah. point. Yeah. Okay, we saw the owl's eyes glow. We saw Rachel's eyes yep. glow when she was being interviewed for the Void Cop test. Oh, interesting. And now, at one hour and eight minutes into the film, <laughs> when Deckard walks behind Rachel and says, but somebody would, he's out of focus, but clearly you see his eyes are glowing. Interesting. Go home, put on <laughs> yeah. Blu-ray. No, you're right. Well, one yep. hour and eight minutes. Okay. Great Everybody yep. listening, stop the podcast right now. <laughs> put on your Blu-ray. Advance to one hour and eight minutes. In this scene, you will see Deckard's eyes glowing. He is a replicant. Okay. He is not the Blade Runner. Gaff is. <laughs> okay. All great, right. Great point. That's Thank you, point. gentlemen. So we get into this love scene, which now part of this is my 2017 eyes looking at this thing. But yeah, and part of it is stories I've heard about behind the scenes of how this was shot. Um, it's pretty rapey. Oh, uh, okay. It's pretty pushy. I don't. Well, sure, it's pushy, but it's also noirish. This is what it, this is how it was yeah. in the noir stuff. It evokes that noir feeling. He's a man. He's a little more of a brutish man. But when he pushes her, she is running. He is trying to make her face something, and she ran last time, and he's not going to let her run again. She ran last time because he was horrible to well, her. Well, sure, fair, but like he's trying to make her face this, right? And in this moment, he shuts the door like this. What's he trying to make then her he face? Well, well, before the, that, that yeah. the, you know, just to establish the fact that, that he's showing more remorse for her, and she's starting to feel her for feelings. him. After he's lying on the couch and he's got the drink on his chest, yeah, yeah. you know, she starts playing the piano. Yeah. And he sits next to her and he goes, you know, I dread music. And she's like, I, I thought I had lessons. You know, maybe they're just yeah. memories. And he goes, you play beautifully. Yeah. And then the angry. Yeah. She's running from her feelings for it. And he's not going to let her run from his feelings, from her me. feelings for him. And so she shuts the door and you may not like it, but this happens. This has happened. I have had this experience. This happens. Sometimes you have a moment where you have to make someone face something and they you grab them. You grab them and they face it and they and it's there. I'm not saying you need to physically abuse anybody, but man-women relations are not black and white. In no fucking way are they black and white. So some moments there are moments where you have to do some. I'm sure in any relationship you've had moments you have to be no, listen to me. There is a situation. So that happens. What he's saying to her in essence is no, listen to me. And he's and he No, what and, he's and saying it, in essence is kiss me. That's your right. opinion. No, that's My, what happens in the scene. No, but I'm saying what he's saying to her underneath the words. Yeah, like figuratively he's yes, saying. Yes, figuratively this, because this, yeah. so, because when he pushes her against the wall, he realizes he's gone too far because he does. He puts his hands out in a way of like yeah, I'm he's sorry. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah, like, he puts yeah. his hands out in a way of I'm sorry and then he approaches her slowly. He does it because he realizes he's pushed a bit too far and he pulls back and she lets him pull back. And Say, that's the thing. Kiss me. Kiss yeah. me. They meet yeah. each other as equals event at, in that moment I think because she was above him in the beginning and she is slowly coming down and he's coming up and in that moment where they have the physical somewhat slight physical altercation it is 
whether are equals and he reproaches her and he says tell me you to kiss me tell me to get and she finally gives in and says put your hands on my body this is her giving in because she's been resisting for so long and so it's there's a, no it's question there's no question that that is what happens mm-hmm. in the scene um two things i'll say about it the first thing is that uh she is at her lowest emotional place I have three things to say. Okay. One, she's at her lowest and most vulnerable place. Mm-hmm. Um, her whole life has been destroyed. Um, mm-hmm. um, second thing is that she is uh, literally has just discovered that she is a, of a species of servitude. Sure, you know, and so that she is actually has no agency over of her life. Right, and and remember when Deckard first met her, he called her an it, and the second time he met her. He treated her like an it. And what is this guy now doing? He's ordering her what to do. He's also... Here's the third thing I'll say. Okay, sure. Here's the third thing I'll say. Sure. Ridley Scott did told Harrison Ford to slam her against the wall. Didn't Uh, tell Sean Young. Oh, that's not good. Um, She burst into tears and was crying. Oh. And Harrison Ford mooned her, ostensibly to make her laugh. Now... Now, and this is the thing. It's like, is the filmmaking the film? No. Does the scene work in the film? Yeah, it did. Yes. Did, did it bother me 10 years ago watching it? No. I, did, I interpreted it just as you've mm-hmm. interpreted mm-hmm. Now I have that story in my head, and that's a little bit in my head. And okay. I also think that's about, fair. you know, that women, partic- women actresses are frequently put in situations in Hollywood where they are pushed into doing things that they are uncomfortable with. Absolutely. And that that is wrong. Now, does that have anything to do with Deckard and Rachel within the scene? Nothing whatsoever. But mm-hmm. it did. But I did go like, well, watching it this time, and that's a fair perspective yeah, to have. Look, absolutely, I mean, Steve, you know, to put that in there. 2017. Yeah, of so. course. Yeah. But he's also in another way, Steve. He keeps her from leaving because there's two crazy replicants out there, and she has just killed one of their friends. Perfectly good point. So that's another reason he kind of like wants to keep her there too. I yeah. would think. All right, Roy goes and meets J.F. Sebastian. Yes, and there's. This, very odd in that relationship between Pris and JF and Roy. JF, JF knows instantly that he's in trouble too. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, when Pris was there, you know, Pris has this like innocence, even though she was using him. Yeah. But when, when Batty shows up, Sebastian gets scared. Yeah. Hi, Roy. Gosh, you really got some nice toys here. This is the friend I was telling you about. This is my savior, J.F. Sebastian. Sebastian. I like a man that stays put. You live here all by yourself, do you? Yes. He gets scared. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The menace you can tell that he is scared. And, uh, you know, Batty is just like, you know, Zora's gone, Liana's gone, right. and it's just us now. And they're trying to tell Sebastian to take... to. Take me to your leader. Right. Is he good? Who? Your opponent. Oh, Dr. Terrell? I've only beaten him once in chess. He's a genius. He designed you. Maybe he could help. I'd be happy to mention it to him. Better if I talk to him in person. But I understand he's sort of hard man to get to. Yes. Here. Will you help us? I can't. We need you, Sebastian. You're our best and only friend. They're trying to butter him up. He's, you know, Batty's trying to make him laugh with like the eyes. We're so glad you found us. Right. And Sebastian is nervous, laughing. He's scared of Batty. 
You and know? fascinated too. Yeah. Like he's scared and fascinated, I think. And we going, how are we going to get in to see Tyrell? And the answer is this chess game. Yeah. Uh, we show up at Tyrell's, wake him up, give him the chess move. Of course, you know, uh, Tyrell thinks that Sebastian is by himself. Right. Because they're playing chess. Right. And he goes, oh, milk and cookies kept you awake, huh, Sebastian? <laughs> yeah, I think you better come up here. So he lets Sebastian in. Tyrell comes down in his bathrobe. And when he sees Sebastian and he sees Batty. And Tyrell, of course, knows instantly. Tyrell gets scared. Right. Like, oh, shit. It's a great acting moment because he has a slight hesitation putting on the robe or wrapping the robe, tying the, the He's thing. He's tying the robe. The robe he looks down. Yeah, and he looks down. And then he adjusts his tactics. And this is what he tries to do. And he tries to, in essence, he tries to kind of play the father to the situation right. and, and compliment him, thinking this is his way out. Yeah. Uh, and then we have this beautiful conf- confrontation between <sighs> Tyrell and Roy, oh, father and it's son. It's disturbing. Yeah. yeah. It is unnerving. It's not an easy thing to meet your maker. And what can he do for you? And the maker repair what he makes. Would you like to be modified had in mind something a little more radical what what seems to be the problem death death well I'm afraid that's a little out of my jurisdiction you I want more life father and he even calls him father yeah he yeah. calls so you know insane. And they get into a, a scientific yeah, discussion. Of the possibilities yeah, of extending like, can we do this? Right. What about this? Well, yeah. no, because then this would get screwed up. Right. And he goes, You were made as well as we could make you, but not to last. The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long. And you have burned so very, very brightly, Roy. Look at you. You're the prodigal son. You're quite a prize. I've done questionable things, also extraordinary things. Revel in your time. Batty is is accepting defeat, but not without consequence. Right. Kisses yeah. him, squeezes his head. And to this day, especially in the final cut, when Batty grabs Terrell's head and squeezes it and, and crushes yeah. his skull, puts his fingers in his eyes, and yeah. you see the blood spewing from his eyes oh, yeah. in the final cut. Yeah. I don't care how many times I watch that movie, I have to turn away. Yeah. It is disturbing. The prodigal son returns to kill the father. And the sounds that that actor makes. It's brutal. It's, yeah. it's very oh, sc- you know, just oh, scary oh, and sad. Oh, he's yeah. crying out oh, in pain. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's And, and, and the owl. Yeah. It's just, just the mechanical Terrell. owl, yeah. just going it's back and so forth. Great. No remorse whatsoever. By the way, I do want to say one thing. What's so great about Terrell, and I think it's a costume, those glasses make oh, everything. The glasses uh, are great. They're just the perfect. Yeah, those glasses. Sometimes it's just that one little extra thing, and it makes the whole character. <laughs> Particularly yeah. because his death is going to come through his eyes. Yes, exactly. You know? And so we've been looking at, focusing on his glasses in this way. Right. Eyes. Um, yeah. Just like going back to... Uh, yeah, James Hong. James Hong. Yeah. yeah, eyes. Yeah, you know, it's all in the eyes. But and the very beginning of the movie. Yes, right. The True. eye looking at you. And the von Kampf test right on the eye. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah, they play a big part. Uh, Deckard shows up at JF's place. Yeah. And who does he run into but Pris? It's a slow build. You know, Deckard parks outside of uh, the Bradbury, and you know the music is just very, very calm. And as you see. Deckard slowly making his way up the stairs to the Bradbury. Mm-hmm. 
watching his step, you know, trying to keep an eye on everything. You see Pris, like, her head moving back and forth yeah. in quick motions. And, like, her eyes roll back in her head. She knows he's coming. She knows he's coming. So he makes it to the top of the stairs. He gets in. He sees a couple of the uh, toys. Yeah. The room that Pris is in, covered with the veil. Yeah. The lighting in that room is gorgeous. And you have one of the toys, like, laughing. Yeah. And Decker is just inching his way slowly but surely with his gun drawn, not knowing what is real and what is a toy, right. not realizing, like, you know, there's a couple real-life figures in the room, not realizing yet that one of them is is Pris. But, you know, she's covered and she's not moving. Nobody's right. moving. And the, the cinematography and, and, and then as he pulls the veil off and he's looking closer, closer and closer into her eyes and she just punches him he goes flying across the room yeah. and he just you know and then she he she jumps on him and puts her legs around his head and and she's beating the shit out of him yeah, she's yeah. terrifying and and yeah. and daryl hannah is great by the way she's she the is. one who introduced the idea of gymnastics because she had done some gymnastics that happened in the casting process she said oh but if she does like walkovers and things yeah but mostly that's not her doing all the the big uh back handsprings uh, there, oh, first there's a female yeah. stuntman and then most of it's a guy oh really yeah. oh, is that right yeah wow. it's a guy how do they tuck that thing in between Because it, it happens is... real fast well if you look at it you go like there's a much thicker person doing <laughs> some of this so she's doing all her somersaults and doing all her gymnastics yeah. and, uh, and Decker just composes himself long enough to get a shot into her mm-hmm. and it is a loud yeah. shot like the it's sound a big gun he's got yeah. like it just goes right into her like her stomach yeah. and she just starts she freaks out she is like you know like out of control mm-hmm. and it's a, it's disturbing to see her like that just like lose all control like that it's very reminiscent of the thing in the sequence mm. with yeah, the, yeah, where, yeah, they, yeah. where they hit the the where they're testing the blood and then they follow, and i think they, that's what she's doing she's like screaming and she's screaming and sounding like an animal like you're shooting an animal or if you've yeah. ever seen those videos of them shooting the cows or whatever like it's scary the sounds that come out of an animal when they're killing it and so that that is what she, this the high pitched squealing and the moving quickly it gives you that feeling of a robot of an android of this kind of like a ash in alien yeah. it has that same kind of vibe you know and, which and, makes sense well, for well, that's a good point yeah. and he is he too is an android yeah. And so, so he in the in the final cut, he he shoots her again, and she's still writhing out of control. Right. And then he shoots her for a final time, and she just just dies. Yeah. And and again, similar to with uh, Zora's death, mm-hmm. we the audience we don't feel good about this. Like you don't go. I mean, I do more than Zora's death because at least he's yeah. in combat. But when she's writhing on the ground in agony, I don't go good. I go ooh. Okay, yeah, it's I have disturbing. A, I have it's a different disturbing. reaction. I, I say good because she's been lying to Sebastian this whole time. Mm. And so to me, it's like, you commit evil, this is your consequence. Like with Zora, I absolutely agree. Zora, I don't feel any... I feel sadness when Zora gets killed because Zora's just performing. She has... From, for all we know, she has nothing to do with what Roy's doing. There is no scene between them where she's like, okay, I want you to do this because then eventually we're going to kill everyone. Like there's nothing of... The, Zora's just performing. But with, with Pris, Pris is actively involved in this situation. And so when she gets killed, it's a horrible sound and it's it's it unsettles you to no end. But I also think it's a little more of an excusable death mm. because of mm-hmm. the evil intentions right. that she has had. So at this point, Batty comes home. 
Here comes Roy. Here comes Roy. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh. And he comes home to find Pris dead. Yes. And he touches her blood, mm. puts the blood against his face, yes. and he goes, Pris. Yeah. He's the last one. Mm-hmm. Terrell is dead. So this is his last shot. He's dying. This is it. Yeah. So he's going to go out in a blaze of glory. So he goes in, and Deckard is waiting for him. And he runs by at the end of the hall. Deckard fires. He misses. Not very sporty to fire on an unarmed opponent. Aren't you supposed to be a good man? Good man? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he goes, uh, come on, Deckard. Show me what you're made of. Aren't you supposed to be a good man? Show me what you're made of. And then he like breaks his fingers. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. At this point, the taunting that Batty does with Deckard is the stuff of great cinema. Stay alive. Oh, yeah. yeah. So quotable. Six, seven. Go to hell. Go to heaven. That's the spirit. And we see two things. One is we see the power and the scariness of Roy Batty. And the other thing you see is the charisma and the genius of Rutger Howard. Yes. Like his performance in this, this is one of those star-making performances. Yeah. Like this sequence, his... And and there's something that's at once sort of primal and animalistic Mm -hmm. in the way he plays it. And there's also something spiritual and holy Mm -hmm. that he is experiencing the moment of his own death fully. Yeah. That's what we see. a nail through your palm. Well, that's the thing. To me, he's he's it, there's Christ imagery. That's definitely. Christ especially and no especially because he strips down to basically what yeah. is a, a loincloth. Yeah. Uh, to fight him, right? Yeah. And he shoves that thing through his hand to be able to and he saves his life when Deckard is about to uh, to slip off the beam, he saves his life. You know, that's like, like the way he like, you know, smashes, you know, he's yeah. his head. I'm, yeah. Okay, I'm going to yeah. give you till 10. He's like yeah. uh, yeah, you know, and he goes a four, five, time to stay alive. Yeah. And, and the, you know, he's howling like a wounded animal. Yes. Yeah. And again, Decker goes out on the the ledge and he goes, "What are you doing?" and he like you know, smashes him in the head with the the toilet seat yeah. and he goes, that hurt. I mean, it's <laughs> so it's funny, yes. but it's it, but it's disturbing. Too. But he says that was unexpected. That's well, what he says. Yeah. And there's this great moment where he's he's leaning out the window in the fire escape. Yes, and he stops. Deckard's gone, and he stopped just for a moment to feel the rain on his face. Mm-hmm. And there's this feeling of this is the last time. Yeah, savor this moment. Yeah. And 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 our, you know. There's oftentimes, in most movies, most action films or whatever, you're with the good guy. Yeah. And in this movie, we are split. You know, mm-hmm. our, our allegiance is we don't want Deckard to die. Right. But we don't want Roy to die either. No, you know, right. And we love, you know, you come to love him in this mm-hmm. moment. And the choice to save him. I, here's a quick question. Was he thinking about killing him or was he always going to save him? Well, okay. So I, the way I, the way I, I feel like... The, at the moment of his death is when Roy Batty became at his most human. He became human. He really became human at that moment. That, you know, he was just going to 
I mean, he definitely was toying with Decker. He was going to kill oh, yeah. Decker. Yeah. But at the moment that his life was about to end, he realized how precious life really was. Yeah. Right. So when Decker jumps across the, the between the two buildings and he doesn't jump far enough and it's raining and he's slipping. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. By the way, that's the real stuntman not jumping far enough and grabbing onto that film. Holy shit. That was not intentional. And then they made it intentional. Wow. Yeah. Oh, is that right? That's yeah. amazing. Wow, that is amazing. Because and it he, works and boy so well. grabs him, and he's got the nail through his hand, and yeah. he grabs him, and he lifts him up, and he puts him down, and Deckard, you know, like, like sits back, like in fear, like, oh, you're going to kill me. And Roy does that beautiful mm-hmm. monologue. I've seen things. You people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Ten Houser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like <clears throat> tears. That he came up with and wrote himself. The end. Oh wow! The end. Yes, the end. The, la- the tears and rain. That's and that's he's holding on to the dove. Yeah. Which, by the way, when the dove flies away, doves are not able to fly in rain. Just FYI. <laughs> uh, but that last scene that the water is dripping down his face. Time to die. Yeah. And he just shuts down. Deckard is staring at him. What rises behind Batty? A spinner. Yep. Who steps out of the spinner? <laughs> Gaff. Yep. What does he say? You've done a man's job, sir. You've done a man's job, sir. You've done a man's job. <laughs> yep. I guess you're through, huh? Finished. Yeah. He's walking away. It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? Ah, which means which means he has figured out that she's a replicant too, or has it been like well, they all? I guess they all know I that she's a replicant, know. right? I think they know. So, but why does he spare her? Why does Gaff spare her when he could take her out and take out Roy in that moment? Because he did a man's job. Okay, he did his job. Mm. I think Gaff spares him because of if he's been following him, then he sees what Roy Batty does. Like why so wasn't he, sees, he helping him? Well, I see. There's something. What I'm saying when he watches, if he's been following him, then he's been watching. Roy bat and in this whole sequence, he watches this whole sequence in the scene where Roy saves him instead of letting him die. Maybe Gaff in that moment realizes that there's goodness and possibility of goodness in these replicants and understands their struggle and lets uh, Deckard and Rachel live. And for whatever reason, like 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 because Gaff was there, he was he was. He was there the whole time. Yeah. He was watching the entire time. He saw it all. I love this theory, by the way. And I mean, as a lover of like, film, I it's, love this it's not just the one scene. He shows either before, yeah. shows up before or after key moments in the film yeah. when these Robert Kids are true. dying. And uh, except for when, when, when Pris dies, because, yeah. you know, that Pris dies and then, and then Batty dies. But, but for him to just always be there right in the nick of time, yeah. like, there's got to be a reason for it. And I think it's because. Because he is the one sort of pulling the strings the whole time. He is hmm. the he, like Gaff is the Blade Runner. Well, okay. 
whether or not, and, and by the way, I have no objection to your theory. Right. Um, what we do know, if, if we are on the assumption that he's a replicant, which I think in the final cut, there's no question that that's true, then this whole thing is some kind of strange experiment, right? That's fair. They're going, what can we use replicants to hunt other replicants yeah. and what will happen? It seems to be some kind of a not entirely controlled experiment. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that Gaff is observing them at the end is we're observing this experiment, you know, yeah. to see what happens. And Steve, it reinforces the idea that he's a unicorn. Yeah. Because he is an anomaly even within an anomaly. Well, just as Rachel's an anomaly. Right. We're like, what? What Those two, yeah. What are we doing here? They're, right. they're kind of an... an then it could be the next yeah. stage. Now, uh, what, I, what I can't explain, what I, what I can't figure out is when Decker goes back to fetch Rachel. Yes. And, you know, do you love me? I love you. And he grabs her and they're going and she, they're walking across to the elevator and he picks up the, he picks up the origami and he's looking at it. Mm -hmm. And in his head, he hears what Gaff said again. Yeah. It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? And as he's hearing the dialogue in his head, he's looking at the unicorn. He's looking at the origami mm -hmm. and he's shaking his head. Yes. He's shaking his head. Like he understands. Yep. Does he yeah. understand that he's a replicant? That he's a replicant. Or does I he under, or does he understand that like Gaff spared her? Right. But but why? But why? Right. But I'm saying he spared her maybe like as a thank you to him in now, a way. Now the, in the the director's cut, the final cut, they get in the elevator. That's it. Thank right. God. Thank God. Yeah. I love that ending. I hate yeah. the, the shot of them on the car going away. Like, where the fuck are you going? Yeah, By the way, there. you know where those shots come from? Where? That's uh, outtakes from the Shining. The Shining. <laughs> He called up Kubrick and said, "You must have shot more stuff." What? Yeah, that's bastards. What um, but, and I, and did, does in the director's cut? I don't remember. It, does the dove still fly up into the sun? Yes. The, yeah. the brightly lit sky, yes. which which yeah. makes After no sense at all. It's all rain, and, and meanwhile, again, the dove okay. is soaked because I hate it's been raining. The whole I wish they cut that out because uh, because uh, you know, Batty's been holding on to yeah. the dove the whole time. Right. Which There's of course no way is that Jesus dove would have been too. able to fly. You know, because of the uh, because it had been soaked soaking wet. Right. But but by the way, that 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 was shot on the last day of the shoot. Wow. And it was a 27-hour day. Oh what? A 27-hour day. Oh, my God. oh and boy. And they, they, they couldn't shoot because the sun is rising. They're yeah. shooting exteriors. So they had to tear down that whole rooftop corner set and move it into a soundstage and continue to shoot the whole time. Good God. All man. right. So you want to hear my theory? Let's oh, here we go. Oh, all right. Okay. Here Sorry, we go. no mine, but let's hear yours. <laughs> um, mine's more philosophical than uh, actual, but here's my theory. And if you know Steve Morris, this makes sense. Go ahead, yes. I was thinking about this movie a lot, mm -hmm. and it's been obsessing me over the last several days, and just keep thinking about it. And what I finally came to, and why the movie is so unsettling, and why it is so unique, is that Deckard is not the hero. Right. Is that Deckard is the villain. He's a bad guy. Ooh. Is that if you look at the course of this movie, and it's inter both with the theatrical version and the director's cut, is this is a guy who shows minimal amounts of remorse. He, we meet him. He's pushed fairly easily into going back to his job of being mm -hmm. essentially an assassin. Mm -hmm. He goes to, uh, when he first sees Rachel, when she comes to his apartment, he callously destroys her. Mm -hmm. shoots Zora in the back. And yeah, does he feel a little bad? Yeah, a little bit. Then he is fairly pushy in the sex department with Rachel. He's whole, he never, there's never a sense of like, he's going to save Sebastian or Tyrell. That's not his motivation. Mm. His motivation is to kill these people. That's it. 
And as they become more human in our eyes, mm -hmm. I think, when you feel more compassion for them, there is nothing in him that is doing anything for a noble reason, almost at all throughout the film. As opposed to, imagine this movie, because I think this is what... So here's this story about these slaves mm -hmm. that are living out in space, and we have a warrior slave and a, a worker slave and a sex slave, literally a mm -hmm. sex slave, and somehow they manage to find each other, and they form a family. And there's tons of evidence that these people think of themselves as a family. Yeah. They manage through some heroic means that we don't know to escape bondage. Yep. They go back home. What's their only motivation? Their only motivation is for freedom yeah. and for life. Okay. In this film, they do not actually attack any innocent people, I don't think. None of the people that get hurt are innocent. Well, Sebastian is. Sebastian, who has been part of designing the slave race. Okay. This is a massive genocide. Millions of people of human. And what do they say about them? They say, well, after four years, they start to develop emotions and a sense of identity. And so that is when we make sure that they die. Mm -hmm. So we've created a race of sentient beings. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly... Normal humans get a sense of identity yes. and, at about four years old. Mm -hmm. But we have determined that we are going to, despite the fact that they are sentient and have real emotions, that we are going to kill all of them at four years right. because that's when they stop being useful by doing things like being sex slaves and warriors. Mm -hmm. So they come back, they find their makers. And to me, by the way, killing Tyrell is a completely justified act. The guy's like a Hitler. You know, um, it is totally justified. And while they're doing this, there is some guy who is killing one by one every member of their family. Mm -hmm. And so they're the heroes. My the theory heroes works in conjunction with yours. You realize that? Oh, the My theory works in conjunction with sure. yours. Because first of all, Roy Batty is the most sympathetic character in this movie. You're right. The, I, I don't the, the replicants... That, yeah. Are like it's like the Fast and Furious of the Blade Runner series. We're family. <laughs> uh, but yes, you know time. when when like Leon dies and and Batty goes to Pris and he says, you know, it's only two of us now. I mean, he's he shows more emotion than anybody. Mm -hmm. else and when Pris's death, this is his daughter. This is Chris. his this is his sister. It's his, it's his girlfriend. I don't know. I think Maybe it's his girlfriend. Whatever it is, yeah. it's, it's love. He, this is yeah. pure true Absolutely. love. Absolutely. Could that moment when he kneels down to her. Touches her lips and yeah. touches her her wounds and puts the blood on his face yeah. was the was the biggest the biggest demonstration of humanity next to next to Batty saving Bat, uh, right uh, and this is goes to, what is what is Roy's most important choice in the film he has the person who has murdered his family mm -hmm. and what does he choose to do in the last moments of his life right. he doesn't kill him. Instead, he says, I'm going to try to spend the, my last moments teaching the person who has yeah. murdered my family yeah. that I am human and my life has meaning. That's certainly fair, Steve. Again, I mean, great theory. Yeah. I love it. Works in conjunction with mine. Sure. I don't, I don't 100% agree. By the way, I'm not knocking down your theory. Yeah. Yeah. I don't 100% agree because you're conveniently leaving out uh, Deckard's moments of humanity. There are a few. Uh, there are a few, quite a few in this film. There are moments where he he does not force Rachel to have sex with him. I, I disagree with that completely. Uh, Only yeah. the moment when he pushes her against the wall and then he's relaxed. But way he makes love to her, he makes they make love to each other. That is a real, very tender moment. Okay. And uh, when he shows remorse for Zora, that is legitimate remorse. There, he resists. To, he doesn't want this job. We we can't be, conveniently forget that fact at the beginning true. of this film. He wants to turn this job down. He does not want to have to do this. Right. And what's his face pins him into a corner and says he has to do it. The only person he kills 
is uh, a priss. He does not kill Rachel. He does not kill Roy. He doesn't kill Leon. And it, well, he kills Zora. I guess he kills Zora, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's the was moment of remorse. Kill, was he going to kill Roy? Uh, he was. Well, Did I think he, he was going Leon? to get there to kill Roy. Yeah, probably. Well, and this is what's interesting too. With the but Pris attacks first, and this is what's interesting. It removes. He, he removes his impetus. His job is to kill them. Right. No, his job is not to arrest. I mean, right. honestly, they're going to die next week anyway. But if his, his job, job is to job kill them, why doesn't he just kill her in the fucking dressing room? While she's in the shower. Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. That's what I'm saying to you. This, there's something I'll else here. I'll tell you here. why. Because he liked checking her out. That's oh, why. Oh, Jesus Christ. Shut up. <laughs> I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> That's good. I like that, Steve. Uh, but yeah, but I, my, my feeling is that he is exploring this for himself as well. And we don't know. All we know is what they tell us at the beginning, that he's, he's a specialist in this. But we don't know if those memories are implanted in him. And, he's, and we've never seen him. And he's never actually killed anybody. No, that's very true. And, and that's what I well, enjoy about the movie. And it's interesting, too. Like, one of the differences in the theatrical... But your theory works. Your theory works. One of the differences in, in the theatrical version uh, is that... Because originally I thought, oh, the voiceover is just there to explain stuff we don't understand. Right, right. It actually isn't. Thinking about it this time is that almost every one of those voiceovers is an attempt to humanize him, to separate yes. him from the evil of what he is actually doing. That's a great point. So, so in the first, you know, we meet M.M. Um, uh, at Walsh, and he says, oh, skin jobs, he was one of, be one of those people that would have called black people the N-word. Mm-hmm. You know, so it shows, oh, he sees the racism of this guy. Right. He goes, uh, this will go in the books after Zora dies. The report would be routine retirement of a replicant, which didn't make me feel any better about shooting a woman in the back. There it was again, feeling in myself for her. So what we hear throughout the theatrical version is him mulling over, Mm -hmm. are these humans or are they not? Um, And that both makes him more human. It doesn't make him less of the bad guy to me. You know, because in in the theatrical version, he's contemplating their Mm -hmm. humanity, but still acting in the same way. If you're contemplating their humanity, if he he makes the comparison between replicants and black people at the very beginning of the movie, Mm -hmm. then what he is doing is even more evil. Yeah. Because he's already seen them as human. That's fair. If we take that out, then we don't have that window into his soul. But he's our protagonist, so it's his journey, right? And no so, question and about I, it. And I agree. And it's I don't just think, the journey of a bad guy. I don't know if I would say that, but I, but I, you know, but I see your point. I see your theory. I just think the the I think that end moment with Roy is really powerful, right? Because he, beautiful, and, and that's the only voiceover that I think should stay in the film is when he says, "I don't know why he saved my life." Maybe in those last moments he loved life more than he ever had before. Not just his life, anybody's life. And I think there's a power in that. That is well, that, well that's that's the that's that's the he's. You're right. I agree that that is actually the best uh, of of all the the snippets of his voiceover. Right. But it's also something that that we get anyway. Yeah. I mean, just you know that like he's just. Looking at him, yeah, the blinking, down, he, yeah, yeah, you know, the way he just like has that hard blink, yeah. like he he was human, right. he was human. Right. By the way, the movie of the replicants coming into consciousness and escaping their slavery as a family, I want to make that movie. That Ooh, prequel movie, would the be Revolution. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's the movie that I want to make. I think if twenty forty nine blows it, up, write it, Steve. Yeah, write it. If twenty forty nine blows the Blade up, Runner, why not? you can have the Blade Runner cinematic universe. Can you hook me up with uh, Ridley Scott? <laughs> I might be able to. There you go. All right, I might be able to. All right. Well, th- this is this cinephiles is suddenly worth it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> All right, Scott, could I ask you for your final thoughts on Blade Runner? My, my final thoughts on Blade Runner is that Blade Runner is like a fine wine; it gets better with age. The fact that more people 
have discovered the film through the years. They've watched it over and over and over again. They have developed their own theories like the three of us have, Mm. that they've dissected and absorbed the film, that it has influenced so much throughout Hollywood history these last 35 years that the the film has topped a movie like 2001 A Space Odyssey as the most groundbreaking and influential sci-fi movie of all time. That the themes that the movie explores about humanity have been explored so many times on film and in TV shows like Battlestar Galactica, like Westworld. Uh, Absolutely. You know what I mean? And especially as we go further and further into the 21st century where, where the themes of the you know what it means to be human will become not just the stuff of entertainment but reality yeah mm-hmm. uh i feel like blade runner will will continue to manifest itself as a movie that will continue to get better with age mm-hmm. agreed what about you this is one of my favorite films ever it is one that whenever i revisit it i'm Im- immediately immersed in the world it shakes my heart from beginning to end. It echoes inside my heart uh, from beginning to end because of what it explores, what it exposes, and what it causes, the journey it causes you to go on, as Scott was saying here, the themes that you have to explore. But also, cinematically, it's one of the most amazingly beautiful sci-fi films to watch, still still ahead of its time, even here in 2017. I think it's Harrison Ford's best performance, in my opinion, of any film he's ever been in. And I think Sean Young is is never better. I think Daryl Hannah is never better. Rutger Hauer is never better. This is, and I would say, and I would argue that Ridley Scott is never better. And this whole film is a moment in time where everyone is in their prime. And it is one of the most fantastic pieces of film. And it may be the greatest noir ever, this side of Touch of Evil, which we have already talked about on, on the cinephiles and one thing I think is really interesting that we didn't touch on is Roy's poem when he walks in and he, to, and he says you know the fiery angels that fell, angels fell deep thunder rolled around their shores burning with fires of orc it's adapted from uh, Blake's America a prophecy the actual line is fiery the angels rose and they rose deep thunder rolled around their shores indignant burning with the fires of orc the orc is this powerful creature, and the story of the orc is the son killing the father, the oh, old young wow. replacing the old, and it is this whole thing. And so there's so much about this that that is evocative. And when I watched it in my twenties, got it. When I watched it in my forties, powerful. Like it's like as my life is ending, as I'm getting close to my life ending, there's more power in this movie than it was when I watched it in my twenties. I no longer watch it as a cinematic masterpiece. Now I watch it as a treatise on life. And well, that's just, what just to, to clarify what you said, you know, Ridley Scott has never been better and it is even better than Alien. <laughs> yes! Yes! You, yes! Listen, you that can't, was you what can't. makes the cinephiles worth it, mister. <laughs> that is it. Finally, you, you, yes! You can't claim my one movie fights and then try to destroy every point I made. All right. <laughs> There we go. All right. Um, Steve, your final thoughts. My thoughts, mister. My thoughts. Well, uh, first of all, uh, when I watched it with my wife, she said something, and I think she might be right, which is that this might be the best, the most beautiful designed film of any film I can think of. Oh, yeah. The the look of this film is unlike anything else. Mm -hmm. Every single detail, every single color, every single Every single prop, set design, costume design, it is absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting to me that I was thinking about is this gets, partially it's because of Harrison Ford, it gets put with those movies like Star Wars and Empire and Raiders Ugh. and all of these films. 
And anyone going to see it, I think, would have the same reaction that you had as a kid, which is that this is not one of those. Mm -hmm. In fact, in a lot of ways, this is more of a 70s movie than an 80s movie. Oh, wow. For this reason is that it is dark, Mm -hmm. it is brooding, it is hard to decipher, it has a lot of complicated questions that Mm -hmm. it just leaves out there and doesn't answer. Um, And one of the interesting things I found watching it this time, so, so... uh, when, when we're getting ready to do a movie, I always watch a movie with my iPad in my lap because I take copious notes because I want to like every thought that occurs to me, something I want to do research on, something I want to explore, anything from behind the scenes. I'm always taking notes when I watch the film. When I watch Blade Runner, I barely took a note. <laughs> I just didn't have anything to write down. Right. And part of that was I was just in the film. Yeah. And part of that is that I just was like, I don't know what to say. Yeah. You know, and then it took days and days since I watched it and thinking about it and thinking about it to figure out what I wanted to say about the film. That's how profound I found this Mm -hmm. film. When I watched it, it stunned me to silence. And those of you who know me know (laughs) I am not an easy person to shut up. It's very true. So stun into silence. I would say to stun into silence. (laughs) I wouldn't say shut up. But what you said, Steve, is absolutely right. And I echo 100% what you say. This is above those films. It's above Star Wars. It's above, to me, it's a more elevated take on science fiction than what you'd find in Star Wars or Star Trek or anything else. And Star Trek does explore these themes more powerfully than Star Wars does, but there's something about Blade Runner that's a whole uh, other level. I don't, like, a, I don't, yeah. I don't like above. I like, to well, me... Well, that's why I'm yeah, saying it. Yeah. Well, I'm saying it. Yes. I understand that. Yes. But I, to me, it's just a different continent. Like, I, I don't like to put... Oh, that's like, fair. I don't like to take a genre, you know, because it's like, is Lawrence of Arabia a deeper film than... Um, uh, Godfather? Than Airplane? Okay. Yes, yes it, it is. is. But is airplane is at the top of its of where it is. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so this is not this is apples and oranges to to Empire Strikes well, Back. Well, sci-fi hey, genre. It's an entirely different kind of fly yeah. altogether. <laughs> altogether. <laughs> well, don't you say things transcend? Wouldn't you say it transcends? I think it transcends the genre. It does. It That's does. what I would say. Yeah, ab- yeah. it absolutely okay. transcends the genre. Surely you can't be serious. <laughs> I am serious, and don't Stop call me Shirley. Sure. Okay, so that's what we My think father of says, you know, hustle back on defense. Yeah, okay, hey, yeah. Hey, the white zone is for the immediate loading and unloading of passengers. Have you ever been to a Turkish bath? You're the one who wanted to have an abortion. <laughs> All right, so next time on The Cinephiles with Scott Mance. <laughs> You want to do airplane? Airplane? Yes, airplane oh my it God. is. Oh my airplane God. it is. Really? Love yeah. All right. Let's uh, do it. I love it. Okay, so that's what we <laughs> think when, of Blade it Runner. It was then that I discovered that I had a drinking problem. <laughs> da, da. Oh, so many great lines. Hey, wait, wait. That, what a pisser. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I picked the last week to stop sniffing glue. <laughs> so that's what we think about Blade Runner. We want to hear what you think about Blade Runner. Visit us on Facebook at The Cinephile, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. Subscribe to us on Stitcher, C-I-N-E, no dash, files. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. When you're on iTunes, leave us a review. You haven't done it yet. You know you want to. It's time. <laughs> you owe it to The Cinephiles and to yourself to leave us a review. If you don't, how will we know that you're fully human? Yes. Make sure you go back and watch Blade Runner and one hour and eight minutes. You will see Harrison Ford's <laughs> eyes glow, proving yes. that he is a replicant. And trust yeah. me, Gaff is the Blade Runner. And and maybe they should visit you on Twitter when they yeah, find so that. You Where can, would they visit? Look, you know, definitely hit us up on Twitter. You can find me. My handle is at 
Movie Mance. That's what the TZ. I'm also on Instagram at uh, Movie Mance. And you can watch me uh, on Access Hollywood. And you can watch me uh, 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 on the Schmodown and uh, on Movie Fights uh, <laughs> with my arch enemy, John Stephen Roca. <laughs> um, and you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter. And John, where can they reach you? You guys can always reach me at The Roca Says, R O C H A, on Twitter and on Instagram every Friday on Collider Movie Talk of obviously the Cinephiles. Please subscribe to us on our on our YouTube page as oh, well. Oh, that's Please. right. We have a YouTube page. Uh, every one of these goes right to YouTube, so you can watch them in the privacy of your home while you're cleaning your house or hanging out at your house if you don't want to listen to it on, on iTunes. And so we want to make this as accessible to everybody as possible. And I want to thank everybody who's commented, who's sent us tweets, who's pushed us into the top tier of TV and film for Potomatic. Thank you so much for doing that for us. We really appreciate it. And Scotty, definitely. Mance, uh, Man, Star Trek 2 put us up in the number six oh, or seven. Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah, you oh, were amazing. Great. People were so in, in love the the podcast. That oh, episode. that makes yeah. me happy. So yeah. thanks, thanks, so thanks for having me on and, again, fellas. I appreciate it. And I want to personally thank you for coming because I always love. Oh, thank doing you, man. It's, it's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. It's been great having you, Scott. Thanks, um, Steve. And that's it for this week. We will see you next time on the Cinephiles. <laughs>